0: Before we get started with today's show, I'd like to say that Tales from the Backlog is a listener-supported podcast. And some personal heroes of mine, like Chris Nelson, the Top 3 Podcast Crew, Zolgeek, Colby Moyer, Eric Guess, Rick Firestone, Jill, Kieran, Z&A, Cupcake, Kyle, Christian S., Matt, aka Stormageddon, JD, and many more, have all chosen to support the show by going to patreon.com slash Jackson. As little as $2 per month will get you voting on episode topics, some bonus episodes every now and then, and other cool treats. Once again, that's patreon.com slash realdavejackson. Any and all support is always appreciated. On to the show. My name is Dave Jackson, and you're listening to Tales from the Backlog. This is a video games review podcast where each week I'm joined by a guest to bring a game out of the backlog, talk about our experiences today, but I'm joined by two wonderful guests today, friends of the show, Immortal Heroes Facing the Calamity, and the two hosts of the pre-order bonus podcast, Cameron Warren and Jacob Price. Welcome to the show, my guys. How's it going? Thanks for having us.
1: We're so excited to be here.
0: Yeah, this is great. This is um, this is a big episode, and I'm very happy to have you guys here. We're going to talk about Breath of the Wild today. Uh, but before we get into Breath of the Wild, I want to give you the customary time at the beginning of the episode. If people are not familiar with the pre-order bonus podcast, uh, tell everybody what it's all about. Go for it, Jake. The Pre-Order Bonus Podcast, what we do is we
1: like to have a a really analytical approach to video games. And so each episode or typical episode will be based on a game, uh, whether when we played from the past or one that's currently, you know, people are talking about for whatever reason. And we break them down according to four categories. We talk about the narrative, mechanics, gameplay loop, and then we speculate and talk about the impact on the industry. So we we like using sort of these categories to framework. You like how we're going to talk about games, um, and to really dig deep into what a game has to offer things mm-hmm. that we really liked about certain games and to sort of just really just go deep. We like to go deep, deep, deep in each, of each of our episodes.
0: Yeah. It's not unlike this show, right? It's uh, every, mm-hmm. every episode is a different game, uh, or sometimes like you guys recently at the time of recording, put out a, a, a little developer interview that was a lot of fun mm-hmm. to listen to, um, so I I love listening to your show. I love the approach that you guys take and uh I any podcast who does like a weekly or you know semi-weekly show talking about specific games, giving it that deep thoughtful uh, analysis. I'm all about it. I uh, I like what you guys are doing.
1: Thank you. Yeah. It's a somewhat, it's so much fun. Yeah. That's I guess the other thing that we do is every now and then we get these we call them the game maker series where we we try to do short interviews with devs. And it's it's pretty awesome. After I think after every single episode we've done, every interview, the dev has said, Thank you for keeping this short. Right, Cameron? <laughs> Would you say that's true?
2: Yeah, I mean we we do try and keep it to a tight thirty minutes, partially because we're both lazy. And, <laughs> uh, but also because yeah it's it gives us like that out of like, oh, we're like the short podcast, so you only have to spend thirty minutes with us, although we've had a couple where we've gone over and we're like, oh, shoot, we have like a lot more to talk about, but yeah, mm-hmm. we still had it on time well,
0: yeah. uh I'm gonna go ahead and break the uh the the short podcast um thing here. This <laughs> is not a short podcast, and uh, especially with the game that we have today, oh man, uh which is the Legend of Zelda. Breath of the Wild, uh, which is an action-adventure game developed and published by Nintendo for the Wii U and the Switch in 2017. Uh, Some elevator pitches if you're listening to the show and you're not familiar with Breath of the Wild. um, I'm saying that this is Zelda goes open world and radically shakes up the long-established
2: formula for the series. Uh,
0: Cameron, how about
2: you? Um, I say Breath of the Wild is... A master class in survival light mechanics and a physics sandbox, mm-hmm. but wrapped in a Zelda skin. Absolutely.
1: Jake, how about you? Link takes a breather before giving Zelda a break. <laughs> <laughs> this, of course, coming on the, the long standing joke that Breath of the Wild is absolutely massive game and from the get go. There's a sense of urgency that, Hey, Zelda's been doing this thing for a hundred years. Why don't you help her out? And you're like, you know what? I think I'm actually going to go gather
0: a hundred apples right now. Right. And, uh, kind of along those lines, you're going to spend a lot of time, uh, gathering those apples and stuff. This is a long game. So I want to talk about playtime just for a second. Um, my first time playing the game, uh, I played on Wii U. Um, it's hard to say because I don't have that Wii U anymore, but this was well over a hundred hours for me playing. Um, I replayed it recently to a, get ready for the show, but B kind of get ready for tears of the kingdom. Uh, this was 40 hours for me on switch. Um, again, like I did all the main stuff. Of course I beat the game. I did some optional stuff, still 40 hours. So Mm -hmm. long game, Jake, how about you? I put down here 90 plus hours. My first playthrough,
1: probably 70, maybe, maybe a little more than that. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's, Wild on my first playthrough, for example, I didn't even know about Terrytown. We'll talk about yeah. that later, but mm-hmm. I, I feel like I still missed a ton of content. And then I did a second uh, playthrough where I was trying to challenge myself where I'd only invest in stamina instead of hearts. Um, mm-hmm. and I got about 15 hours, two bosses into that one before I gave up. <laughs> and then, um, Five-plus hours horsing around trying to replicate speedrunning tricks. Breath yeah. of the Wild has a freaking awesome speedrunning community, mm-hmm. and the routes that they've established are just so mind-blowing. And because the physics sandbox is so good, I was like, I got to see if I can do some of these. Yeah, They're really absolutely. hard, by the way.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk about um, the potential for that stuff later, for sure. But kind of mm-hmm. little tease at the beginning of the episode. Uh, Cameron, how about you? Playtime in Breath of the Wild.
2: Yeah, I think I put around 60 hours on the Wii U. I was one of, I noticed Dave, you're a fellow Wii U (laughs) Breath of the Wild player, which were of a rare kind. Uh uh, So (laughs) rare. I actually played that game on the Wii U. It's actually, I feel like there's a running joke in the gaming industry. Like nobody played that game on Wii U. We exist. Oh yeah. And it's the majority
1: here. I'd like to point out that the majority of people here
2: played this on Wii U. Oh yeah. The majority. Yes, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I put in like 60 on the Wii U and another probably, I just checked my timer, like another 40 on on the Switch. So yeah. like 100 in total. Um, but funny enough, never actually beat the game. I'll just toss that out there. I, <laughs> I put that many yeah. hours and never went and fought Ganon, which is, just don't know why, but I could, you know, we can analyze that.
0: It's like Skyrim. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot to uh, keep you occupied. And, um, if you're listening to this episode and you have not played breath of the wild, uh, the spoiler policy for this episode is the same one we do on every episode of the show. It's a no spoiler breakdown for a a while. And then there's going to be a spoiler wall. You can check down in the show notes for a timestamp for exactly when to stop listening. If you don't want to be spoiled on breath of the wild. Uh, So let's get into our histories with the game, with the Zelda series, um, guests will always go first in this section. So Jake, uh, what? how long have you been playing the Zelda games? What brought you to Breath of the Wild? Why did you want to play this? I mean, I,
1: I was first introduced to the Zelda series with a lot of people from our generation, Ocarina of Time. Um, mm-hmm. So late 90s, you know, I'm a, a pretty young kid. Um, now, growing up, we didn't have an N64. Our first console is actually a PS1. So I grew up playing like Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask in spurts like at friends' houses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I played a lot of Game Boy. And I remember when A Link to the Past with Four Swords uh, like added onto it was released for Game Boy Advance, if I'm not mistaken. And so that was my first game in the series that I beat start to finish on my own. You know, I, it was the first Zelda game I actually owned. And to this day, it's still my favorite Zelda game. I try at least every year to play through it once as sort of like, this is like, I don't know, my gaming ritual, if you will. I love A Link mm-hmm. to the Past. Um, and then th- since then, uh, I just play Zelda, mostly mainline games when I get a chance, uh in high school, I finally bought an n sixty four I put this in here because this is so hard to believe. I bought an n sixty four and ocarina of time for twenty five bucks off of somebody. <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's before the retro prices got fucking out of control, like yeah, yeah, I mean, I was looking um yeah, just you can't get that stuff for twenty five bucks these days um, mm-hmm. and I played the game a ton. I probably one hundred percent of that game in some capacity uh at this point. Um, but yeah, since then, like my console gaming has been super, I have a really weird and long history on that. But eventually, um, I played pretty much all of the mainline games with the exception of Wind Waker and Skyward Sword. And so when Breath of the Wild was coming around, when those trailers were first coming out, I didn't have a Switch or a Wii U, but I was like, okay,
0: I have to play this game. It just looks too good. Right on. Uh Cameron, how about you?
2: Yeah. So I, uh... I, I mean, Ocarina of Time is one of my favorite games of all time. I think that's sort of my gaming coming out. Like that's that's the game that made me realize that, like, oh man, I I really like video games. Like these are cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, <laughs> and just had had some magical moments with that game, and then Majora's Mask as well. And then I kind of fell off the series for a long time. I dabbled in Twilight Princess and in Skyward Sword, both of which I I didn't finish. Just like didn't pull me in and say, I mean, I I always loved like the Zelda lore and the Zelda kind of world building. I always thought it was like really fun, uh, but just never finished those games for some reason. And then, you know, obviously had my eye on uh, just gaming in general and the breath of the wild trailers were just some of yeah. the best, probably some of the best to this day. I think that second breath of the wild trailer was just like an incredible trailer. Like that thing slapped mm-hmm. so hard. that I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm back in, like I'm so back in and just kind of everything they did to, to present it. Um, and then, so I was in from day one, pre-ordered on the Wii U, got my hard copy and yeah. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm kind of like you guys. One of my first ones, uh, for the Zelda series was Ocarina of time, but my first one was Link's awakening on the game boy. And, I was a huge Zelda fan all through Ocarina Majora's Mask and Twilight Princess. I'm actually always like one generation behind playing these like cross-generation Zelda games. I played Twilight Princess on the GameCube, and then I played Breath of the Wild on the Wii U. Um, but kind of like Cameron, like I kind of fell off. I hated Skyward Sword. Uh, when I, came out. <laughs> I really disliked that game. Um, the motion controls just really bugged me. I hate motion controls in general. Um, and the fact that I had to do them in Skyward Sword really bugged me. Um, so then, uh, it's a little more of like a, a personal story here. Like I was living overseas. Um, I just moved overseas, uh, to Korea in 2015. Mm-hmm. I moved and I, I didn't play video games for a couple of years. Like I, I played, Xenoblade Chronicles over the course of like two years. Um, and mm. that was kind of like all I played. I was just doing other stuff and I kind of got this feeling like maybe I'm done playing video games. I'll sell the Wii U. I'll sell my Xbox 360. I had an entire carry on bag. When I moved, I was allowed to take two suitcases and a carry on bag. And my carry on bag was just video game consoles. That's <laughs> how much like, nice. I, I, I thought those were, those were important to me. And then I was like, you know what? I'm, I think I'm done. And then I, I was just kind of like heard. I didn't see the trailers for breath of the wild. I didn't know there was a new game coming out. I just like heard there's a new Zelda game. Someone at work maybe mentioned it or something. And I was like, you know what? One more Zelda game. Be like the last game I play before I sell all this shit and move on. And mm-hmm. if you're listening to this podcast. You know, that's not how things turned out because <laughs> this game completely reinvigorated my love of video games. Like, brought me all the way back in and it's a good kind of transition to get into just some quick opening introductory thoughts about this game the first time i played this this was like immediate this is the best game i've ever played type of mm-hmm. territory the first time um right. then i replayed it uh, in the last couple months um and i i started to get the feeling like oh this like it started with like, oh, this isn't quite as good as I remember. Like, I don't really like the combat a whole lot. And the shrine puzzles are super simple. And I still hate the divine beasts and stuff like that. (laughs) But I came out of replaying the entire game with this feeling like, no, this is one of the best games I've ever played. It's so much greater than the sum of its parts that like, when I kind of itemize and say like, oh, this is good. This is bad. This kind of sucks. This is okay. It's like, not that good on paper, but when I play it, it's, it's, it's magical. I couldn't stop playing it. I Mm -hmm. was intending to dip in and just kind of like play the great plateau and refresh before the recording. Cause I can look up the story of this game. It's like a paragraph long, right? Yeah. But I couldn't stop playing it and I just played all the way till the end. And I still like, I still just have, this game will always have a special place in my heart. Um, despite, you know, some things that I think are fair criticisms about the gameplay and stuff like that so Mm -hmm. it's a magical game for me I'm, i'm really looking forward to talking with you guys about what it is that like gives it that quality for me personally um but yeah i'll turn it over to you guys to see um your thoughts cameron how about you
2: um yeah i when i played this i think the great plateau the great plateau like beginning portion of this game is probably might be my number one game of all time like the specifically (laughs) the great plateau but like the beginning of the game i think the first three Mm -hmm. hours are just impeccably crafted like yeah it's just it's essentially the great plateau is essentially like a mini version of the entire map on that one like little location and Mm -hmm. i think that introductions of the game just absolutely floored me and it actually as great as everything else was it actually just went downhill from there for me (laughs) (laughs) because i think some of the other elements like the boss fights uh like the larger dungeons like the divine beast uh you know areas um some of those things like didn't really and the story overall like didn't really hit for me but the like the ex at the time, and I think Elden Ring has sort of surpassed this in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, like that wonder and magic and the exploration of that world was like an uncomparable experience. Um mm-hmm. and that's kind of why back to my earlier comment, kind of why I never beat it, because I I literally spent all my time just exploring the map and finding yeah. cool stuff. And I did all the divine beast and I was like, you know what? Like, I'm good. I don't need to go fight another sorry, boring boss. <laughs> uh I, I'm I kind of explored this world and got what I wanted out of it. I'm just gonna kind of leave it there, which I know is like probably super weird, but that's kind of what happened. Yeah, well if you got what you
0: wanted to get out of the game and you're happy with just putting it down, then I mean we all mm. we all should be more like that when we're like, you know what, I'm satisfied. I'm not gonna keep playing right. this game to completion if I if I don't want to, you know. Mm. But so uh Jake, opening thoughts about Breath of the Wild. Um I loved this game
1: when it came out, and I think it was like a flawless game for me. Just, I guess, to talk a little bit more about my experience actually playing this game. Um, in 2017, when this came out, I didn't have a Switch, and I did not have the means to buy a Switch, but we used to do, my wife and I did babysitting swaps with another couple. Mm-hmm. Um, so like we, one of us would go over there and watch our kids while they went out on a date, and then like we'd switch every week or something like that. And they bought a Switch, and, uh, the, the guy was like, dude, you gotta try Breath of the Wild. I was like, sure. Of course, kids are their kids were asleep. And so I booted it up. And so over the course of like two weeks, I think I did the Great Plateau experience. And mm-hmm. I thought I was like, wow, this game is incredible. And then I realized that there was probably an infinite amount of game afterwards. And so that Great Plateau moment for me was like, I have to play this game and have to play it to completion <laughs> at some point. And the funny thing is that eventually I did, um, but I did it on a Switch Lite. Which I think is probably the worst way to play this game. Uh <laughs> I I would just highly recommend you don't play the, like the controls are too small. I would say for a world so big to fit in such a tiny screen really sucked. Um but mm. yeah, I I've I've been booting it up, um, knowing that we're coming on to do this episode. And okay, six years later, I can have a little more nuance in how I'm looking at this game. Yeah, it does have some flaws, right? And mm-hmm. I think um part of that is there's just kind of an uneven experience across bosses and shrines. And mm-hmm. I think, uh, with the shrines, when you've got as many as there are in that game, of course there's going to be some unevenness, but like the motion control stuff, for example, like, you know, like the ball in the maze and then you have to like rotate yeah. it right. Like that kind of stuff always drew me bonk, drove me bonkers and, but, um, I would say like the core aspect of the game, like every time I've booted it back up, it's just been, it has the it factor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much about it that's enjoyable. The physics sandbox that is the game, I think it's just has not been uh, met since then. I can't think of another game. Maybe, maybe like control, right? Is another game where you can sort of screw around in what the game allows you to do. And it's still like pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, there And then, then there's one section in the game we're going to talk about in the spoiler that I, if I had to hate any aspect of this game, it was one, this one section of this game <laughs> that I really despised. Um, mm-hmm. But the rest of the game is just, just so much fun. And uh, let's see, the last thing I have in the notes here is why are the controls so weird? yeah coming back to this i'm like the controls are so funky they're so weird why Mm -hmm. why did we allow this
0: (laughs) why is why is the jump button x on the switch it doesn't make any sense (laughs) like it's the only game i played in a long time that has that but yeah. yeah um let's uh let's take a little music break when we come back we're gonna set up the story and then dive into that gameplay So in Breath of the Wild, you begin, this is like a hard reset. It feels like Nintendo took all the criticism from Skyward Sword and how hand-holdy and talky that game was. And they're like, you know what? Fuck it. You're off. We're not telling you anything. And (laughs) the game opens with uh, Link waking up. Um, You do a extremely small, short tutorial. It teaches you how Mm -hmm. to jump and climb. And that is it. And you walk out, and it has this beautiful moment. It's, it's. I mean, it almost brought me to tears when I was replaying it again. Like this game means a lot to me. When you walk out, and you're in a cave at the beginning, so you walk out, and you see the full landscape, and the piano, and the music rises, and it shows you the title card mm-hmm. and stuff. It's, it makes an incredible introduction. And then um, when you do get into the gameplay and into the Great Plateau, that that introduction to the game continues. Uh, you meet a man outside. Uh, by a fire who tells you uh, what's been going on. So a hundred years ago, the kingdom of Hyrule fell uh, to the calamity Ganon, of course, in the legend of Zelda. Um, mm-hmm. and Hyrule is kind of a post-apocalyptic wasteland now, kind of, there's still people out there living and, uh, congregating at stables for some reason, but, um, <laughs> there's not a whole lot of life out in the world, uh, other than plants and stuff and some animal life. Um, Hyrule Castle is enshrouded in this black and red smoke, which is the the monster Calamity Ganon that's overtaken it. Zelda is out there holding Calamity Ganon kind of in check and has been for the last hundred years. (laughs) Uh, And it's your job to power up with your singular objective to go destroy Calamity Ganon. But before you can, and we're just going to drop the story there, we'll pick it back up in the spoiler section Before you can go fight Ganon, unless you're a speedrunner, you're going to have to play the game for a while to power up. Mm -hmm. So this is the bread and butter. This is where we're going to spend the most time in this episode, I feel like, talking about what it's like to play this game. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it is an open world. It is a huge open world. It is much bigger than it initially presents to you. And this has kind of become a shorthand for me personally. Um, Both of you guys played Elden Ring, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So um that moment happens in Elden Ring too, where you, you start the game and you're like, oh, pretty big open world, right? And then it expands to like eight times the size of what yeah. you thought it was. That's become a shorthand, call it a great plateau moment for me, mm-hmm. because once you're done and you're set loose, it is just incredibly big. And uh, a little note here that Monolith Soft, uh, makers of Xenoblade Chronicles, among other stuff... Uh, were brought in to assist with landscape and topography design for this open world. And I think it really shows. Like, yeah. uh, Cameron, you mentioned, I think, that the the open world was unparalleled at the time um, in, in a landscape with, uh, you know, uh, Assassin's Creed games and Far Cries and stuff like that. that is kind of like anonymous open world design. And then you get into mm-hmm. this game that just feels
2: so crafted and uh, thoughtful, you know? Yeah, again, and I have to caveat at the time because cause Elden Ring has surpassed, I think. again, And I say in some ways because I think the exploration has been overcome by Elden Ring. Re- like, what they did in terms of making that world interesting to look at and to mm-hmm. find things in is mm-hmm. unparalleled, I think. Uh, and that, but at the time, Breath of the Wild did that. Um, and then when you mix in kind of that combination of, like, the survival light elements and like the cooking and um you know the sliding on your shield and the physics elements and the you know and obviously the gliding with the glider which is just so i mean what a what better feeling is there than jumping off like a high point in that game and just mm-hmm. gliding down to some random location that you haven't been before just like that that feeling was just was just unparalleled and so i think the combination of all those elements just made that open world just so compelling to to look around at and mm-hmm. the game rewarded you i think the key th- the key piece here is the game rewarded you uh for doing that by giving you interesting cool stuff to find in basically every corner that you looked which is pretty exceptional and what was better about that versus other open worlds i think that had been done before is uh you know like assassin's creed being a great example is those games didn't really reward you for looking around just mm-hmm. going and kind of doing what you wanted those games mm-hmm. rewarded you for checking boxes and icons on a map which mm-hmm. is a different kind of game it's not a bad game but what breath of wild introduced with just looking around which i think skyrim also does some of that without some of the physics and and interesting things that, that breath of wild does but yeah it just it just did that better than anyone else um and it just made it magical mm-hmm
1: I've got a lot of opinions on Breath of the Wild's open world. Believe it or not. <laughs> um no, no. You never, never. Know yet. not um, this guy. Not this guy again. Yeah. <laughs> Breath of the Wild's open world I think is the most to my knowledge extreme example of an open world. Now, mm-hmm. um I agree that I think that Elden Ring's open world is on the same level as Breath of the Wild, so like in terms of what it's accomplishing with the basic goals of how we understand what an open world is and how you engage with it. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the reason why I think that Breath of the Wild's openness is still so extreme is that there is really nothing stopping you from going from one place to another, right? There's really yeah. nothing stopping you from going straight to Calamity Ganon and, and initiating that fight right off the bat. And any, any percent speedrunner of the game will tell you that you can do that in under 20 minutes. You know, you mm-hmm. can beat the game.
0: And not through like just real quick, you can, you can do that, but not through like glitching your way into the final boss or something. You can literally just run, do the great plateau real fast, go to the castle, fight Ganon, uh, without yeah. cheating somehow, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and the only, I
1: think like gate, that there is in Breath of the Wild is a Great Plateau, right? Because the glider is locked to completing the Great Plateau, and those cliffs' faces are high enough that if you jump down, you'll die. Mm -hmm. I think now in Elden Ring, it it is quite similar, right? But there are more gates, I think, than there are than just the one. So if we're just comparing, like, the number of gates to where you can actually go in Elden Ring versus where you can actually go in Breath of the Wild, Breath of the Wild has one, right? Um, Yeah. And... I I do really love and I admire that so much about this game, and what is so dangerous I think was with, with you know having that type of a risk in your game design is that you have got to make exploration worth it. Otherwise, mm-hmm. people like not casual. I mean, people. Excuse me. I mean to include casual gamers will even find shortcuts to get things done if something seems too big or too meaningless, right? And my least favorite criticism of Breath of the Wild's open world is that it is empty. And mm-hmm. I'm sorry, It's I hate that term, right? What you really mean to say when you say an open world is empty is that it is lacking meaning or interaction. And I just have to say that Breath of the Wild's interface, like literally with climbing, even the dreaded rain that we all hate when you're climbing, um, just going mm-hmm. and hunting animals, chopping down trees, gathering resources... This world is chock full of meaning and interaction. Now, you might not find that super exciting. You might find it tedious, and I think that's fine, right? But to say that there's nothing in this world really, really just rubs me the wrong way. Um And yeah. so this open world, the other thing that I absolutely love about it is that the landscaping feels so organic and mm-hmm. so natural. And then I don't really like to drag games, but I'm sorry, it's going to happen, exception here. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is exactly why I did not like Immortals Phoenix Rising. Oh there's okay. a lot that I like about Immortals Phoenix Rising, and it does borrow a lot from Breath of the Wild. But I felt like it is so obvious where the gates and checks are for your stamina and for the other survival light meters that are built into that game that it felt like the game literally like the landscape of the game was designed to be one giant puzzle. Whereas in Breath of the Wild, exploration was so uninhibited by like cliff faces and random channels and narrow valleys, et cetera, that you could, could just kind of go out in really any direction and you can make it there on three hearts and one stamina wheel. You really mm-hmm. can. It might take you a long time, but it is possible to do. And so I just think that this open world is absolutely fantastic. Um The last thing I'll say here is that I think that this open world is a masterclass of environmental storytelling. Um, this is the land of Hyrule. It is very obviously moved on from the events of a hundred years prior. Mm-hmm. Link and Zelda are memories if they're remembered at all. And, um, the world has moved on. And I just think that there's such a wonderful, it's kind of a mix. It's like a, a mix of a melancholy for a civilization that was lost a hundred years ago but also a rebirth or a spring of the communities that did survive the calamity Mm -hmm. from 100 years ago and how they flourished and developed their own cultures and their own way of life even 100 years out. And so I just think in terms of the way that they baked in the world building into the open world is really unsurpassed.
0: Yeah. Uh, I want to touch on that criticism that the open world gets for being empty, um, because this was something that I have also seen a lot um, It's something that I thought like in the time between playing it for the first time and then kind of forgetting some stuff, you know, four years later and then replaying it, you know, we did an episode on this show last summer about open worlds and like what makes a good open world and what makes a bad one. And we we talked about like a giving you a reason to explore, like giving me something when I explore Um, and Breath of the Wild does that. You are, every time you explore somewhere, you think that looks cool. I bet you there's something up there. It might be a Korok, uh, or it might be a shrine, Mm -hmm. but all of those things are helping you power up toward your ultimate goal of fighting Ganon at the end. Um, and the other kind of conclusion we came to in that episode was, okay, if a game doesn't have meaningful rewards for exploration, make the act of moving through the world fun And Breath of the Wild is super fun to climb and glide and all of that stuff. And I got almost the same fulfillment from like climbing up to the top of a mountain and overcoming that challenge because you're you're governed by your stamina when you're climbing stuff. Uh, Maybe it starts raining and it's a challenge to get up to that top of the mountain and like... Mm -hmm so maybe I found a Korok and I go from having six Korok seeds to seven and it's not a huge difference there. Well, guess what? I get to jump off that mountain and glide down wherever I want. And I find that to be personally really fulfilling and rewarding. So it hits on both of those axes. I think even if you look at it and say like, Oh, I'm not finding this amazing treasure. Every time I explore somewhere I'm being rewarded in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. Like the act of moving is fun and i'm probably finding something to help me power up kind of incrementally you know yeah
1: yeah the last thing i'll say here is to bring in another game and this is a game that i loved um was death stranding and i know this <laughs> turned off a lot of people but i loved walking through that world because i yeah. had to think about it and i think me too if if i didn't like immortal phoenix rising like their landscape design and how they decided to make puzzles out of it I think Death Stranding is the polar opposite of that, where they actually made walking a puzzle that to me felt really enjoyable because it wasn't necessarily cumbersome. It was something that kept me engaged and kept me thinking about how I was interacting with the world instead of feeling like brick wall to brick wall to brick wall. Yep. I have the strong opinions out of Cameron and I on this. I've brought, (laughs) I've, I've like written five essays probably in different chats about you know, how I feel about Breath of the Wild. What's funny is
2: I always get the most crap on our podcast for <laughs> being a Breath of the Wild chill when I, I feel like I'm actually more critical of the game than Jake. Jake actually likes the game more than me. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. easily.
1: I don't know why Cameron's and to sort of I don't I don't think we've explained this joke, but in our podcast community um, a lot of people don't like Breath of the Wild. And to the point where we made an emote for a Discord channel that's like anti Breath of the Wild. <laughs> um, Cameron and I both really enjoy it, but I like it way more than Cameron, but Cameron's the lightning rod for criticism. Whereas I could just sit in the back and eat popcorn every time oh, yeah. Breath of the Wild comes up.
2: <laughs> but I do like Breath of the Wild, but I do think, and if we're still, we're still on the topic of open world, I do think the story sucks. <laughs> oh yeah. If, if we can bring
0: it back around to that, I, I kind of agree. Like there, there's a, um link has lost his memories. And so most of the story that you get in the game, like direct storytelling is by kind of recovering these memories and watching flashbacks from the past and stuff. And those mm-hmm. are not special to me, um, in any way. Uh, the story that you get directly told by playing through the game is not super special. Uh, in my opinion, I don't care about story in Zelda. And the good thing about breath of the wild, unlike fucking, uh, Twilight princess, but also skyward sword (laughs) is if you're not into the story, you can just fuck off into the wilderness for 30 hours before someone talks to you again, if you want to do it that (laughs) way, you know? So that is a a little like feather in the cap. I mean, it's, it's faint praise to say that you can ignore something instead of saying (laughs) that it's good, you know?
2: (laughs) And I think it's, it's tough. This is one of those tough conversations where it's like, you know, how do you make a great, story that exists organically in an open world setting and also make Mm -hmm. the open world feel good, you know, but I think it's a, it's a tough thing. It's a tough thing to figure out. And I, it may Mm -hmm. just not be, I think it's, it's, it's good that they put their effort into other places. That being said, I'm definitely like a story gamer type person. And so that Mm -hmm. did fall flat for me, including the voice acting, which I just think is atrocious. I think it's the worst voice acting like ever. Literally. It's,
0: um, yeah, I I think that like the, the five or six main characters that you meet that have like full voice acting are fine. And Nintendo absolutely could have afforded better voice acting and oh, better yeah. voice direction. The other characters that you meet that just have little like one off lines are atrocious. They are. It is like almost unforgivable to me that Nintendo, again, unlimited budget for a fucking Zelda game. <laughs> and they're just like you know this this sounds like we're pulling people off the street to go Hoo! in when they talk to you
2: <laughs> literally pulling people off the street like where is the Nolan Norths and the and the what's his name i mean they could afford it they could afford yeah. it
0: yeah oh the uh, the thing about story in open world games um i i was thinking about the witcher 3 which is a huge open mm. world game very long game uh and a game that i think has good storytelling in it and the way yeah. that I think The Witcher 3 does it uh, in a good way is that your side quests have really good stories. The stuff that you're yeah. spending your time mm-hmm. with when you're out exploring the open world have interesting stories. And, like, the main plot of The Witcher 3 is fine. It's, it's nothing special, right. in my opinion. But those side quests, those are great. And in Breath of the Wild, if we're talking about open world design and side quests. The side quests are also atrocious in this game. It's a lot of, like... Uh, I need you to go find me 65 berries and bring them back to me uh, because I need them. And (laughs) I, so my, my replay of this game, I did not do a single one of those side quests and I was all the better for it.
2: That's a great skill to learn. Dave is to learn that you can skip sky side quests that you don't want to do. I know it's really (laughs) hard for people to understand that, but if you don't want to do a side quest, simply skip it.
0: Yeah. It's a side quest. It's optional by
1: nature. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, it's so funny because I feel like, I feel like Zelda, I totally agree. I think the main story of Breath of the Wild is really straightforward. It's bare bones, hero's journey, right? Stop the big bad. Let's, you know, maybe meet some friends along the way and, mm-hmm. and let's get it done. Um But it's funny because I felt like there's some of the best writing actually in the Zelda series in Breath of the Wild just sort of the quippy like the best humor i think the humor of breath of the the wild landed for me right like you'd be going to like you're right people are meeting up at stables they've turned into some sort of like public house you know Uh (laughs) and um some of the like conversations you would have with some of those people they're you know it's just two or three lines or whatever and sometimes i'd get caught off guard where it's like this person will talk to me for quite a while, right? And mm-hmm. you're just kind of going through dialogue quite a lot. And I thought like when the humor was used in like those little just conversations, I, it was probably the most that I've enjoyed a lot of Zelda writing. Um, but I do agree that like. I guess what I'm coming at here is this, it's a bit of an uneven experience. Like, I think the environmental storytelling of this game is phenomenal. And I think some of the explanations that they give in game in some of the side areas of why and how people existed, you know, these throughout these 100 years is super amazing. But mm-hmm. like, but going for a side quest, yeah, all the side quests just felt like that. Hey, can you go halfway across the planet to get me these items? and then bring them back to me, and maybe I'll give you a rupee, right? Yeah, you get Um, 20 rupees. Yeah, 20 rupees. And the funny thing is sometimes the game will make jokes about that too, right? Yeah. Like, if you actually get all Korok seeds and give them to Hetsu, like, I'm not going to spoil what he gives you. I haven't done this. I had to look it up, but it is very funny. And if you don't have the right sense of humor, you will not be laughing, right? Mm -hmm. So, I just felt like the narrative experience is pretty uneven in some regards sometimes i like i was like fell in love like with what these npcs were doing and saying and other times i was like no this isn't gonna happen
0: yeah uh actually one other thing about the storytelling in this game is that uh this is to my knowledge the only zelda game where link is not a silent protagonist link doesn't have voice acting but link does speak in the game you pick dialogue options for link when you're talking to people Mm -hmm. and some of those were pretty funny to what you're saying there jake um you can kind of choose to role play a little bit just in how you talk to people, but mm-hmm. Link can be kind of a dick, like a sarcastic yeah. <laughs> uh, dick if you want to, um, other, or you can play it straight with, you know, the, the classic Link is the hero type of thing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I do agree that like, well, I'm, I'm going to stop short of saying that this game has good writing. It did make me laugh a couple of times, which is mm-hmm. not normally how I experience Zelda dialogue, you know?
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I can agree with that. Yeah.
0: So Jake and I are back. Cameron had to jump off. Cameron had limited time to record with us today, but we appreciate Cameron's um, appearance on the show and taking the time to talk with us uh, quite a bit. And you'll hear from Cameron when we give our final thoughts at the end of the non-spoiler section now we talked about the open world. Now let's talk about what you're doing in the open world. So, if you're not following the main quest, which we'll talk about that later, the bulk of mm-hmm. your time um is going to be exploring and mostly in my experience looking for these shrines that are mm-hmm. kind of dotted around the landscape. It's they they stand out really well from the open world. They you know, you have these these nature colors with the way that the world looks and then you have these mm-hmm. Neon oranges that really pop from the landscape um, for a shrine that you haven't visited yet. So, the shrines are kind of this game's replacement for dungeons in a way. Kind of, we have our yeah. bigger dungeons later, but then we have these small piece like bite sized dungeons here. Um, so, you find a shrine, you go inside, and it is usually a puzzle. And it might be mm-hmm. one big puzzle. It might be like two or three puzzles of increasing complexity, mm-hmm. but they're kind of bite-sized. And this this is one of the things that I think is really great about this game and in particular playing this game on the Switch uh, because I play handheld. This is how I play Switch. I don't plug it okay. into my TV. I have the nice like larger hoary split pad controllers uh, for my Switch so I can play... Mm-hmm. Uh, handheld without the fucking joy cons. Um, (laughs) And one of the good things about these shrines is that they're short. You can do a shrine in five to 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, If you get stumped on the puzzle, it will take you 10 minutes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And I, I, I'll get your opinion on this, Jake. I Mm -hmm. I personally think that most of the shrine puzzles are fine. They're okay. Um, I can't think of a single shrine puzzle where I was like, that was fucking awesome. Great puzzle. <laughs> but they're okay. Um, for the most part, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with there. I mean, there's like what, 120 shrines in this game total. 120, yeah. And there's, there's just like no way you're going to get a consistent level of quality across that many shrines, right? And mm-hmm. what's remarkable to me is that there actually weren't as many combat-oriented shrines. Like you said, most of them are puzzle-based. Um, yeah. and puzzles based around the physics of the game which to me is yeah. holy cow to to sit down and try to think out that many puzzles seems pretty wild to me mm-hmm. but yeah that's the thing is and, and I totally agree with this right where I can think of certain shrines puzzles that made me want to pull my hair out but yeah I can't I'm really hard-pressed to think of shrine puzzles that were extremely meaningful or ones that felt like they were done incredibly well or were you know totally laden with aha moments right mm-hmm. but yeah it was for the most part i mean shrines they they were they were good they did what they were supposed to do they were extremely valuable right as a as a fast travel point and then upon yeah. completion um just sort of the resource that you get for them right? Yeah. Um, just they're super valuable. So I'll, I played, you know, breath of the wild similarly to you where that's how I spent most of my time was like, okay, how many, like pull up my map. Okay. I haven't really explored this area. There are probably a bunch of shrines over there. Let's go find Mm -hmm. them. And then exactly close my map, you know, start trudging off in that area. And then thankfully you have like an indicator that beeps when a shrine is nearby And for the most part, finding the shrine isn't too big of a hassle. Uh, Some of those
0: shrines are buried, though. (laughs) Uh And it It can be hard to find some of them, but most of them are just kind of sitting out. You may have to get a vantage point or a certain perspective enable in order Mm -hmm. to see them. But once you do see them, um, it's real straightforward to get to them uh, most of the time. We said that most of them are puzzles. Uh, There's a couple. uh, Jake, you mentioned this earlier. They use the gyro function on the Joy-Cons or, oh boy. in my case, the Wii U gamepad. Um, and these suck really oh, bad. Man. First of all, so I was playing on Wii U, but I was playing with the Pro Controller because I, I'm okay. not going to play with that gamepad in my hand for 100 plus hours <laughs> You know, when I'm playing on the TV. Yeah. So I was playing with the Pro Controller, but the Pro Controller gyro doesn't have gyro for the Wii U. Oh, so I had okay. to literally dust off the gamepad sometimes to do these puzzles. And then when I'm playing on Switch, I'm playing with the Hori controllers, mm-hmm. which also don't have gyro. They're officially licensed by Nintendo. So oh, I had man. to sometimes wait till I got home so I can plug it into my dock and finish the gyro puzzle. And then when you do, it is often as simple as there's a ball in a maze. You have to rotate the maze to get the ball to the other side and to go through all of that trouble just to do that or to use the gyro to swing a hammer and knock a ball across the the shrine it sucks i, I yeah. just we may talk at some point about our hopes for tears of the kingdom this is like near the top of my list get rid of these fucking gyro puzzles i don't yeah. want them
1: yeah uh, those <laughs> those gyro puzzles were such such a nightmare i ended up cheesing every single one of them i think on my first playthrough I did a few legit, like, just the way that, or as intended. That's the thing about this game is I feel like it's actually really hard to cheese. But when we talk about, you know, the mm-hmm. physics sandbox, I can explain more my my reasoning there. But um, I did a few of them as intended, you know, where the ball is going through the maze and you're tipping it and you want to make sure it gets to the right spot before it kind of dumps out onto a platform. And then it pushes a button and you can get through the door. Um, but eventually, yeah, I just in most of them because it was just yeah. such a pain. And like I said, the first time I played this game was on switch Lite, and it was really not fun to try to do those on switch Lite.
0: Oh yeah. Cause if you're rotating to try to get the ball through the maze, then suddenly your screen is out of weird angle and it's tough to see. I mean, so. I I don't know if I can explain
1: this in words very well because this is an audio (laughs) format, but just think like my hands and wrists would be like contorted, you know, and I'd slowly be moving them be like, and you know, I'm trying to like keep my eyes on the screen, but like I have to bend my wrists backwards because I'm just trying to just get the ball to move just like one in-game meter. Yeah, Yeah, it was, yeah. Like I said, uh, a lot of these puzzles I can think about examples of shrines that I really disliked. Um, now I actually tended to really enjoy the combat ones, um, with the, interesting, with the mini guardians because, um, and I think they're divided like, um, a minor test of strength, a modest test of strength, and then a major test of strength. Mm -hmm. And those ones I didn't mind because I felt like they were really good practice for different enemies and different weapons. I viewed them exclusively like as combat practice with different weapons and different techniques that I was trying to learn. And um, I found them to be rewarding in that way. Some of those fights drag on quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but I tried to use that to my advantage, right? And mm-hmm. some of these shrines were the main reason why I didn't complete my second playthrough, which I wanted to challenge myself by only investing in stamina instead of hearts. And, okay, you know, some of those later challenges, three hearts is squat, you know? It doesn't matter how much defense boost yeah. you got, you're dead, right?
0: Yep. I have heard criticism of Breath of the Wild out there in the ether that it is copy paste, that it is tech demo-esque, and I don't disagree with that notion entirely, because these combat shrines are copy and paste. Mm-hmm. There are I think there's thirty of them in the game, something, yeah, something like, like, that. like that. And they are all exactly mm-hmm. the same. The bu- the guardian you're fighting might have more health in the uh the major test of strength compared to the minor test of strength. Um, they may have a couple of extra moves that they pull out, but it is exactly the same. Yeah. And so every time I went down into those combat shrines and it popped up, or I saw the layout because the layout's always yep. exactly the same. Um, and I was like, a minor test of strength. I was like, oh, <laughs> God damn it. They have a ton of health. Um, once you learn the moves, you will – you should not get hit by Mm -hmm. them very often they don't mix up their move sets and like a couple people whose opinions on games i respect have called this game kind of a a punched up tech demo and i don't entirely disagree with that i mean saying that tech demo is like a a pejorative like it's a bad thing um which if i'm buying a zelda game i don't want to buy a tech demo Mm -hmm. but when i see that these combat shrines are so copy and paste and we'll talk about the boss fights later they are almost exactly the same each one mm-hmm. and uh when we talk about the enemy variety there's like 10 enemies in in a 100 hour game mm-hmm. there are certain aspects of this game that are copy and paste and i i think that like the first couple of these combat shrines that i did i was like okay cool combat mm-hmm. shrines and then i realized it was never going to change and then i was like i don't ever want to do <laughs> one of these again I'm, I'm sick of it yeah uh so We, uh, we've, we've talked about how the shrines are a mixed bag. Uh, we'll say there's some that are cool. And I was like, that's, that's a, that's a cool puzzle they thought of, uh, with the mechanics uh, that they gave me. And then there are some where I was like, I never want to do this again. Yeah. Um, so why keep doing them? And the answer is when you complete a shrine, you get what's called a spirit orb and you trade four of them for, uh, an HP upgrade a heart upgrade or a stamina upgrade. Mm -hmm. Those are your two main things that you're using to power up. And um, I think that this game does a really excellent job of setting short, medium, and long-term goals Mm -hmm. for the game. We already know our long-term goal, which is to go fight Ganon. Mm -hmm. We have to power up first. So what are we doing in the meantime? Short-term, you're maybe climbing something or you you see a shrine, you need to figure out how to get there that's your short-term goal to get there medium term though uh you are often working toward the main quest i think working toward these divine beasts Mm -hmm. um there are four of them in the game that you need to go not need but should go and free in order to help you on your um quest to defeat Ganon. and these are the big zelda dungeons yeah Um, if you want to really make a direct comparison. The divine beasts are the temples from um, the established Zelda formula. And these have the interesting thing where they each contain like five mini shrine puzzles inside of a puzzle box. They all have this puzzle box aspect to them where you're manipulating, literally manipulating the level. You are, maybe you're turning things or maybe you are, uh changing where this water flow is going and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um the Divine Beasts get a lot of shit out there. Yeah. I don't think they're good. Um I, I think that like if you put this in another Zelda game it'd be one of the worst tempers in that <laughs> game. But on my replay, I didn't find them as hard as I found them my first time. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was less friction, but I, I was still just not satisfied by this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, kind of coming back to this
1: idea of short-term, medium-term, and then long-term goals, I think um this is mm-hmm. absolutely one aspect where Breath of the Wild shines, right? When it comes to exploration, yeah. right? And kind of getting back to this idea of an open world and what should be in an open world. I mean, the game has these established goals for you, and it makes them very clear. Um, and uh, the reward for finding the shrine, right, the spirit orb plus a fast travel point is just too invaluable to pass up, right? And, and, yeah. and, so it's typically, uh, if you see a shrine, you won't skip it unless this is a subsequent playthrough and you know it's a shrine that you really dislike, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but typically whenever I saw a shrine, for example, like, oh, great. I can rest up, you know, I can get on my heart's back. I can get a fast travel point. I can get something that's going to be really useful for me when exploring. Um, the other, the other aspect of this would be the towers, right? And this is like the Assassin Creed towers, yeah. right? Where, they unlock uh, portions of your map so you can actually see the topography when you're looking at your map. And they also function as a fast travel point. And it's interesting because um in the early part of the game, like those towers are just if you find one, you find one, you climb it, and then you activate it. And then as you sort of move away from the center of Hyrule, they tend to be more heavily mm-hmm. guarded. And Or there's a few that are in like poison swamps or whatever it is there or, or they're covered in thorns yeah. and so you have to figure out a way to clear the thorns before you can climb them and i felt like those felt more like the combat oriented shrines or puzzles in the sense that like here you, you're actually going to have to use your arsenal to unlock them right whereas in, as we discussed in most shrines you don't but anyway these these short-term medium-term long-term goals i love that the long-term goal is so urgent at the beginning of the game. And then you realize, oh, wait, yeah, I don't have to do this right away. Right? Like I, <laughs> I can really build and work up to this. And um then for me, a lot of the game just turned into like, we've discussed finding these shrines, but also just like going, traversing the landscape and seeing what it has to offer. Mm-hmm. Like, I think when I first discovered that you could find these golems and that they would reward you with a ton of uh gems, jewels, Right. I thought, holy cow, you know, the first time I played this game, I was like, I'm going to go try to find a bunch of these, right? Because Mm -hmm. they are really valuable. And it's a fight, you know, that it's a different type of fight. And let's just kind of see what we can do. And so I felt like these goals would constantly evolve as I was exploring as I stumbled across like, oh, by the way, this, you know, gameplay mechanic exists within the game. That gave me a great adrenaline rush. Let me find some more of this. And so I just love that there is a real fluidity to what these goals could be. Yeah, um, Maybe some of them was just like, hey, I'm going to chop down all these trees and get a bunch of apples, you know, or or I want to find these ingredients. I'm just going to go find a pond and throw a few bombs in it and collect 17 fish or whatever it is, right?
0: Yeah. there There's a real joy to maybe you don't see a shrine, but like you said, you look at the map and you see a spot that you haven't been to yet. There's a real joy to... Going there, seeing what there is. Um, And depending on what there is, maybe you get a reward. But, you know, part of that, part of the reward structure in this game is the knowledge that you used your toolkit or your stamina bar or just your smarts on how to Mm -hmm. um, manipulate the climbing or something like that to get there. And um, then, you know, if you want to just kind of chop down all the trees, like you said, and build bridges across. Rivers or whatever with the, <laughs> the tree trunks or the tree, uh, yeah, trunks, you can do that. So mm-hmm. um, there is, there is a, a lot of joy to that. Mm-hmm. So, what did you think of the Divine Beasts?
1: Let's, I thought they were fine. Like, they were so atypical, right? What you've come to expect from Zelda games. And it's, it's funny because yeah. it's true. The equivalent of these Divine Beasts would be a temple. And I'm thinking like Ocarina of Time, for example, right? Yeah. And, but they're just so not. They just don't meet that standard. (laughs) And so part Mm -hmm. of me is like, do we put them in a new category? But I don't know. They were just so strange to me because like, I'm thinking like back to like a, a Link to the Past or Link's Awakening. When you go into one of those temples, I feel like there's a real threat for your life, right? Like if you're not managing your hearts well, Or if you're in a room that has, you know, those fast conveyor belt floors and spikes everywhere and you're really screwing up your Pegasus boots, like it has serious ramifications and you've got to be really thoughtful about how you go from room to room. And I felt like the divine piece, the divine beast, excuse me, were slow paced, you know? Yeah. You would have the goopy eye thing that you'd have to shoot with an arrow and then you had a lot of puzzles and... Yeah, because so much of Breath of the Wild is already at that pace, it was a bit of a letdown to go into a Divine Beast and be like, the pace hasn't changed. You know, they're, I'm just doing more intense shrine puzzles, Yeah, um, trying to manipulate a specific mechanic or utilize certain physics. Um, my second playthrough of this game, I honestly just looked up speed running uh, tactics to get through. Mm-hmm. because I just, I don't know. I think in my first playthrough, I was a lot more generous with them. I think they were still enjoyable. They were they were new, so I had to figure them out. But the second time playing through them, I just thought, it's I have to get from point A to point B, and I'm going to have to cross over this puzzle this way and that way. And they were immensely less fun the second time around.
0: Yeah, the first time I played, I'm kind of the opposite. The first time I really hated these, and then when I replayed <laughs> just now, um, I, I thought they were like not super fun but better than the first time and i mm. think it's maybe just cuz i had a little bit more familiarity um the the puzzle box aspect of them feels like nintendo exploring the idea of giant puzzle box dungeons instead of like you know go in this room do a mini puzzle then go in the next room do a mini puzzle yeah. Uh, then you find the Zelda item, which lets you complete the rest of the puzzles in the dungeon. Right. And then you get to the boss fight that needs that item. This is doing away with that structure. Mm-hmm. You get all the items you're going to get in the first five hours of the game. So they really leaned into this like puzzle box thing. And I just, it feels like a first attempt at it. Yeah. And I, it's something that I think Tears of the Kingdom should do better. Like if they don't. If they're not better in Tears of the Kingdom, I think it'll be a massive disappointment to have new ones six years later that are not better Yeah, would be disappointing. So yeah, uh, the, the Divine Beasts are really helpful, though, for your quest to defeat Ganon. Like I said, they're technically optional. You don't have to do them.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I recommend you do them. Not so much that they're going to help you fight Ganon, like the final boss fight. They help you, but it's not like you couldn't do it yourself. Mm-hmm. But it, you do get mechanical rewards. You get extra hearts. You're going to pick up equipment, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a good segue to get into talking about your toolkit in the game.
1: Yes. Um And this is great. The last comment I want to say about Divine Beast ties into this really, really deeply where Yeah. I mean, you establish like the long running Zelda format for dungeons, right? The first half of the dungeon you do with whatever you bring into it until you get the item and then the item unlocks the rest of the dungeon. You need the item on the boss. And then in A Link to the Past, one of my favorite games of all time has this massive problem where that item means squat now. Like once you've defeated that boss, you will never need the item ever again, right? Um, or in a very rare, like, off-the-beaten-path way, you'll need it. And it felt like the trade-off was, okay, instead of having these Zelda items in each dungeon, we're going to give you this physics toolkit, which is the Sheikah Slate. And this is your arsenal that you can use in every single dungeon. Now, I think um the pro to that trade-off for Breath of the Wild is that that toolkit is invaluable for the entire game like those mechanics that they offer are crucial to how you're going to creatively get through breath of the wild now mm-hmm. um and so they never grow old and there's, this, there's never this problem where it's like i'm never going to use this ever again well there's probably a, a, a need to use it in some capacity later on right but right. but the problem right is that suddenly each of the dungeons become puzzle boxes like you said that are going to feel a bit similar in nature because there's no chief mechanic to shake them up it's just the same old tools right but um but i was a i think four of these i loved of these five abilities
0: (laughs) yes and that is a good transition to get into your toolkit in the games you're not picking up these items so what are you using In Breath of the Wild, uh, we have done away, like Jake said, with that traditional structure of picking up a new item in every dungeon and then forgetting about it. In this game, during the tutorial on the Great Plateau, you'll get your main five abilities that you're going to use the entire game. Mm -hmm. Uh, Link has this magical tablet called a Sheikah Slate, and you pick up these runes for it. So real quick, they are Cryonis, which freezes water into a pillar that you can climb on. Stasis, which freezes things in time, allows you to build up potential energy uh, by hitting it. Magnesis, which helps you move metal objects. Um, and bombs, uh, which are either round or, uh, interestingly enough, cubes yes. um, for different situations. Uh, all bombs in this game are remote bombs. It's a great idea. And uh, you also get a camera. So yay, yeah, a camera. <laughs> um, so in this game, all of these... Sheikah Slate abilities, uh, work together with the physics sandbox that, uh, Cameron was talking about earlier, uh, along with many other systems for how weather work and how enemies work and how fire works and how wind works and everything like that yeah. to create almost limitless potential for emergent gameplay. And when I talk about how this game is way greater than the sum of its parts, I think it's because of this, uh, the mm-hmm. emergent gameplay and the creativity that it affords you, is just incredible to see a situation, think about the tools you have and how they can be manipulated, how they can interact with each other, how they can interact with the world, and just let you problem solve the way that you want to problem solve. This Mm -hmm. is a game that says yes more than it says no when Mm -hmm. you try and think of a solution. So I have a couple examples here. Uh, Jake, I wonder if you can think of some too. Uh, Breath Mm -hmm. of the Wild was mentioned in the discussion Um, on the show a couple months ago about emergent gameplay. Um, An example. So fire sets grass on fire, as Mm -hmm. it does. Uh, When it lights on fire, it creates an updraft. Uh, You have a glider in this game. So if you jump and glide in the updraft, you will fly up into the air. Mm -hmm. When you're falling, if you pull out your bow, time will freeze uh, for as long as your stamina wheel can hold out. So if you're in combat and... You use a bomb uh, in a grassy area. It will light it on fire. You can use the updraft to ride up and get an advantage in combat, Uh, Mm -hmm. all because of the way these things interact. And you can shoot arrows. You can do a plunging attack. It is uh, just a very small but very creative example of how you can Mm -hmm. use these things.
1: Yeah, I think this is so remarkable about this game that – there's a really strange sense of verticality in how you get above enemies, right? Um, mm-hmm. and the fact that they included like the cube bomb, right? The bomb that doesn't roll. Uh, yeah, that was probably one that I ended up using way more than I thought I would, right? Or I yeah. actually ended up using both bombs quite a lot, but like, uh, just starting with the cube bomb, there are these different, um, bokoblin fortresses that are in the shape of a skull, right? Yeah. And um, it was really easy to sneak up to them because there's there's stealth in this game as well, right? You could climb up there and then I would just like drop a bomb and then eye socket and then just kick it over. And then I w- it would land exactly where I needed it to be. All the Bokoblins, <laughs> you know, they get question marks above their head. They don't know exactly what's going on. They haven't seen me quite yet. Get them all to gather around the cube and then just kablooey, right? Just blow them up and then yeah. just create chaos that was one of my favorite things to do, especially in that context because because the arena that they're in they can't ever really see you right, and then just kept creating confusion amongst them until I could I would just hop in they're all down at like a quarter health and then just go to town with a sword or whatever it is um yeah, so the square and another w- yeah the square ended up being really useful when I wanted really precise bomb placement,
0: yeah, um. I use bombs a lot in combat. Uh, there's a lot of, um, uh, what's the word, combustible stuff around yeah. that you can use your bombs to blow up and get an advantage in combat. Um, this is really, really apparent early in the game, before you've powered up much, when you have shitty weapons, um, yeah. and this this game at the beginning is harder than any Zelda game I've played, except for the ones on the NES. Uh, it really reminded me of... When I tried to play Zelda one and I was like, oh, this, this is really fucking difficult. (laughs) Um, reminded me of that game in, in more than one way Mm -hmm. uh, in this, in breath of the wild, when you approach an enemy camp, um, you're always outnumbered by the amount of enemies there. Mm -hmm. It kind of brings up my other example that I've used talking about emergent gameplay in this game where like, if an enemy doesn't have a weapon, but it's combat state, they'll try to find a weapon. Yeah. If they pick up a metal weapon when it's raining, uh, they will get hit by lightning because lightning strikes metal in this game. It's one of like the hard coded rules, Mm -hmm. um, the way that you can manipulate this, if you can pull it off, like it's a, you know, honestly unnecessary thing a lot of times, but it is fun to manipulate this and say, Hey, I wonder if I drop this sword that's about to break, if they'll try and pick it up because I stole their weapon. Uh, and then they'll get hit by lightning and it works. Yeah. And it's just like the game is like, yes, of course you thought of this. We'll let you do this. Mm -hmm. And I love it when video games do this. It's, I said it in that emergent gameplay, um, discussion that we did. It's the secret sauce, which makes like a lot of my favorite games. My favorite games Mm -hmm. is allowing me to use the rules for how the world works, uh, and express my creativity.
1: Yeah, and and this is exactly why I think it's really hard to cheese this game, because uh the Sheikah Slate gives you all of these tools and it gives you these hard coded rules like the one that you mentioned with lightning, and it says, All right, let's see what you can do. Let's see what you can do mm-hmm. with all this, right? And so, uh, for example, going back to those uh, gyro puzzles in the shrines, almost you know, every time now if I'm doing one of those I'll always angle the thing so that the metal ball is in a specific corner facing wherever it needs to go. Glide on over to the puzzle, hop down, hit that thing with stasis so it freezes, whack it a bunch with a sledgehammer, and then as soon as stasis breaks, just watch that sucker fly exactly where I need it to go. And Uh is that cheesing the game? (laughs) It's not a glitch, and I'm following the exact rules that the game is giving me to yep. accomplish a puzzle right and so i just love love that breath of the wild allows for this type of out of the box thinking i mean you're still following the rules of the game but it's definitely out of the box if we're going to come down if we're going to call it like gamer logic yeah of how you're supposed to take down a fortress of bokoblins there there is no one set way you might find like you say there's some combustibles over here okay so i have that to my advantage oh, you know what, the wind is blowing this way, or you know what, I've got a Korok leaf, I bet you I could roll a bomb over there pretty easily, yeah. right? They mm-hmm. all crowd around with question marks above their head, and then, bam, my bomb sets off three other explosive barrels. And, it, I mean, it would be hilarious seeing how sky-high some of these bokoblins would go. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just, they just freaking soar, you know, like across a river, right? Cause you're just hitting them yeah. with five different <laughs> explosives at, at any given time. Um, so I wasted a lot of bomb arrows. <laughs> that was a, <laughs> a lot of my, my playtime was doing that. Um, one of the funniest things I think to do was to use stasis on enemies or on objects that they were trying to use. Uh-huh. Um, because they'd panic, right? And, I, and like you said, I love that enemies would respond to how you're interacting with the world. And I just felt like um, Link wasn't necessarily super powerful. Like you said at the beginning of the game here, right? Like it's hard. You have three hearts. You have one stamina wheel. You have to be really smart about how you enter combat scenarios. But one of my favorite things to do was just to mess with the enemies. And I always kind of imposed on them that they probably thought Link was some sort of deranged wizard, right? Like, like <laughs> who on earth is this freak? Like where this guy come from and why can't I use mm-hmm. my club right now? You know? And then yeah. suddenly you, he's got a few sword slashes into him or suddenly his yeah. friend is being blown to kingdom come because some lunatic with a cube, you know, a uh, bomb is sending him off. Right. And yeah. so I found those moments to be super enjoyable. Right.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned, um, speed running a couple of times throughout this, this game mm-hmm. or this, uh, this episode, The interactions that are possible in this game, like we're in 2023 now. If you see clips of people posting stuff on breath on uh, Twitter, like clips from this game or on the, the subreddit for breath of the wild or Zelda, um, Mm -hmm. the stuff that's possible with these interactions between your abilities and the physics system and everything, it's wild how high the skill ceiling is with these things. Yeah. Like you could play this with just using things the way that they are like quote unquote supposed to be used and you can fight every enemy camp straight up. It's possible, but why would you not experiment with all these tools that you're given and all of these systems? Mm -hmm. And like, obviously I find myself more on the basic side of these things than like the Twitter clips I see, but it's, it's crazy how high the skill ceiling is and like how little it takes to, start to discover those interactions for yourself. Like there's the yeah. one with stasis where if you, you see a big rock uh, plate on the ground and you, you hit it with stasis, you whack it with your sledgehammer to build up a bunch of energy and then you jump on top of it mm-hmm. and it will launch you across the map. Yeah. And sometimes you'll die. Cause you, <laughs> why, why wouldn't you die by doing that? But sometimes you won't, you can use your glider to save yourself or something like that and travel huge distances in a couple of seconds just because you thought to use your knowledge about how everything works to your advantage.
1: Yeah, it, it was remarkable. I feel like in the early days of those Twitter clips, a lot of people were just making tree rockets to get around, <laughs> especially in the speed running community where yeah. essentially what you're doing is you have your woodcutter axe and you're chopping down a tree, and as it's falling, you hit it with stasis so it's at an angle, very quickly, you, you know, you swap to something else, you whack it a few good times and then you hop on the tree log and then you just rock it somewhere. Right. And yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I remember seeing those, uh, all over Twitter and I ended up using that a lot and I ended up using tree missiles as like, or, sorry, tree rockets as missiles that I would fire at enemies. Right. <laughs> it's super hard to land it. I am not very good at actually landing my mark with that. But that uh-huh. was just, like, another example of, like, uh, this, like, little group of Okoblins is going to panic because <laughs> there's going to be a tree <laughs> just flying straight <laughs> at them. <laughs> and um yeah. th- I think it's it's kind of rare because for me, I love to play, like, stun builds in a lot of games. And here mm-hmm. I just went on full chaos. Like, I was like, okay, I'm going to just send all these dudes into a panic. Their health meter is going to be halfway down, and then I'm going to charge in and just kind of take them all out while they're freaking yeah. out. And I just found so much enjoyment in that because the game would respond like that. Um, the the last I I mean, we could talk about the speed running forever, but you you mentioned this, like as you're falling through the air, if you pull out your bow and you, you know, pull on an arrow, not the arrow, and you haven't fired yet, time will slow down. And what speedrunners have discovered, they call it the bullet time bounce, where if you time it right, you can actually have that happen. And if you have like a shield on your feet, as if you're sliding on it, you can bounce off of certain objects and go crazy far. Now, (laughs) there's kind of a lot of button inputs to make this happen. It's not intuitive. It's tricky. And like I've already mentioned, the controls of this game are a little wacky as it is. But if you mm-hmm. want to try this out, I would highly, I can't remember the YouTuber's name, but there's a tutorial, and the best way to learn this is at the Temple of Time on the Great Plateau. If you go up to the tower where you first get the glider, directly mm-hmm. beneath you is a Bokoblin, and you can practice the bullet time bounce and just skip off that dude's head. and Nice. And just go, <laughs> I mean... I'm not super good at it. And the few times I got it, sometimes I just went straight into a wall and died immediately, you know, <laughs> whatever it yeah. was. Yeah. Um, and then they've uh, developed a technique to do this midair as well, using the two different bombs to give yourself this massive propulsion forward midair. And so mm-hmm. watching some of these speedruns, believe it or not, there is a 100% speed run of Breath of the Wild. And this is what they'll do to get across the map quickly is they'll do a bullet time bounce and then they'll just keep the, refreshing this essentially mid air with these bombs and they'll just go and go and go. And so, yeah, there's, there is there I don't think we have found within six years of this game a limit to the creativity of how you can use this game, like the game's physics. No,
0: I'm, I i do not pay super close attention to the speed running community for this game or anything, but like, I'll tell you this, like every time I see a breath of the wild clip on Twitter, I watch it. And every time I watch one, I'm like, Holy shit. I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. That's crazy. Six years later. So
1: six years later. Yeah.
0: Combat in breath of the wild is, you know, we just talked about the complexity of all these systems and their interactions and stuff. Combat by comparison is really simple. And in my opinion, not great. uh, Especially, playing some of the other games that I really like that are combat focused. Um, And honestly, like if I'm thinking back to other 3d Zelda games, it's basically the same sometimes feels worse. If I'm being honest um, with a couple of new mechanics on top, like you can parry in this game and there's a perfect dodge. Mm -hmm. Uh, I parried a lot. I could not do the perfect dodge to save my life. So Uh I stopped trying Uh, Which kind of sucks because that's the only way you get like this amazing counter attack is not by parrying, but by doing the perfect dodge. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. um, I'm with you there, right? Like, if you were to strip away all of the Sheikah Slate abilities and then just focus on combat, you know, mano a mano, right? Um, it's, It's, yeah, I think you start to see like the limitations of the enemy types, the enemy AI, right? And the different types of attacks that they're doing. And I think the worst combat scenario in Breath of the Wild is essentially when you're, you know, not really, I mean, let let me think of it. uh, Let me put it this way. Sorry. the the, Probably the worst scenario is it's you versus like five bokoblins, right? Mm -hmm. And you're waiting for your bombs to recharge or you're waiting (laughs) for an ability to recharge, right? Because they're just kind of spamming attacks at you. Um, the lock-on is a little funky because you lock on by holding block. Right. So there isn't, I mean, I found that to be a lot more restrictive than I wanted it to be, especially with like two-handed weapons for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So I feel like spears become pretty valuable, which is kind of rare, I feel like for, you know, combat and action games because you can use them with your shield. But yeah, I felt like... Combat was just weird, actually, when we... Uh, I I booted up uh, Breath of the Wild again for the last time before this podcast last night. And I was practicing just, like, parrying. And the parry timing was just a little off for me. It wasn't used to... Like, it's not what I'm used to, like, an Elden Ring by any means, like, the timing. Or, like, Hi-Fi Rush, which is a game that I recently finished, right? Mm-hmm. I, I felt like there's something weird going on there. So, it's funny. You and I had different experiences because the Flurry Rush... I's something that I could pull off really consistently interesting and in at one point I was really good at parrying and I that's how we take down most Lionels is by parrying them yeah um but the the flurry rush like especially against the mini guardians, I felt like was one that I really had dialed in, and that's how I could do a ton of damage and like you said those I think are the two most interesting aspects of combat by far um it's just kind of a shame because like I was I was like one on one. With a with a white Bokoblin, which is one of the more beefy ones. Yeah, and man, I think he had like one type of attack, which was just like slash slash, wait. Yep, and that that was it. And so I was like, okay, um, there's not really much to do here if I'm just going at him with my sword.
0: Yeah, the enemy variety. already talked about it stinks uh, for a game this long. There's no excuse for there to be this few distinct types of enemies. Um, even if you're talking about the, um, bacoblins versus the, the moblins, however you say them, it's a, it's a tiny dude with a club versus a giant dude with a club. They're still <laughs> functionally the same enemy. One of them is just bigger. There's, they don't mm-hmm. have different attacks. They don't have different abilities. So you fight those two, you fight some bats, you fight slimes, you fight, uh, lionels, which are new enemies for this game. As far as I know, uh, these centaur looking things that are very difficult, but, the, the reason they're difficult is because they hit very hard and they have a million hit points. And then when you get to the kind of upgraded versions of those regular enemies, like you said, the white bokoblins, they're the same enemy as the basic ones you meet in the first half hour. They just have a million hit points and they yeah. hit really hard. So there's no real challenge to them. Like I'm not getting hit by those enemies. By the time they start appearing, they just take forever to kill. So when I replayed the game and I think something that contributed to me playing 40 hours versus a hundred is I, I didn't fight anything in the open world. Like if I saw a bokoblin camp, I didn't do it because I knew my reward was going to be maybe some arrows, maybe some rupees, maybe a gem or something, but there was nothing about the combat encounter design that made me think, oh, this is going to be fun Um, which is why there's one place late in the game where they take away all your abilities and make you kind of use, let's say your final exam for the game, basically. Yeah. Um, and that was great because I was back to square one and I had to use my knowledge. Uh, whereas like when, when I'm fighting stuff in the, in the world or whatever, I'm just like, maybe I'm going to get a new sword from this, but it's going to take like five minutes to kill all these things the same way I've killed all of them before. Mm Mm-hmm it's just not worth it. I don't think. And this kind of gets into like your reward being a sword sometimes, uh, which is the one of the game's biggest lightning rods, um, which is the the fact that weapons have durability in this game, um, (laughs) and not a lot of durability, not durability in the sense that like, if you use the same weapon for like 15 hours in Elden ring, it'll break. It's like, if you use (laughs) the same weapon, against four enemies in breath of the wild it'll break how do you feel about weapon durability
1: oh man what the this is quite the topic it right is. and people are still <laughs> still debating this. yes um i think weapon durability uh, there's a lot of reasons why it's a mixed bag and there are a lot of mixed emotions just to give a straight answer i wasn't too bothered by it because Mm -hmm. i kept finding enough weapons to keep things replenished right now i would have had uh, a much more significant problem if weapons were sparse right and there are stretches for sure in breath of the wild where uh finding weapons suddenly becomes difficult for whatever reason right or you're like oh you know what it's bokoblin camp i'm gonna clear it out real quick so i just have an extra sword and then you're rewarded with a gem and you're like great But I needed a sword, Mm -hmm. right? And so, this is a pretty big contrast, I think, with the shrine rewards. Shrine rewards are consistent and they're highly valuable. But, like, going through all these different camps, very inconsistent. And sometimes you end up with a bundle of five regular arrows, right? Yeah. Um, And it just, it was like, crap. I wish I would have known that this would have been worth it, right? Right. And so, I, I think, coming back to weapon degradation, I mean... For the most part, I wasn't, I didn't have a shortage, so I wasn't as hot and bothered. However, I think weapon degradation would have gone over infinitely better had there been a very clear path to where weapons were and how you could obtain them. Mm-hmm. And if they lasted a bit longer, like, <laughs> like you said, this is the problem. Like in Elden Ring, yeah, 15 hours with the weapon, it might break, right? And then you could repair it, right? Yeah. Whereas in Breath of the Wild, you can't repair it. I think that is the number one red flag with weapon durability. If you can't repair weapons, right, then you're going through them quickly, right? Um, and just that there, it's so inconsistent getting new weapons and knowing whether or not a weapon's going to be worth it, right? Yeah. Um, I think, um, in terms of just like the overall game design, they were way too skimpy on the number of good weapons in the game and they were way too plentiful in how many like Korok sticks. We're just lying around, right? Yeah. So I I don't know. I feel like the, the mechanic itself as a mechanic that exists isn't necessarily a bad idea. But I don't think the implementation was super flexible here.
0: Yeah. I, I think that the idea of weapon durability in Breath of the Wild is really good. Uh, it is throwing a wrench in your plans during combat. Oh, shit. My <laughs> weapon broke. Now what? And... Mm. I think that this system really sings in the first five hours of the game when you don't have an inventory full of other weapons that you can use and you have to start thinking like, oh shit, I don't have a weapon and there's all these enemies chasing me. So, okay, I drop a bomb, I hit them with the bomb, they drop their weapon, I go grab it. Now -hmm. I've turned the tide. Those moments are really great, I think, Mm -hmm. but those moments stop being moments like five hours into the game, because suddenly you have tons of weapons and mm-hmm. you've found lots of korok seeds and you've expanded your inventory, and you get to a point later in the game where, okay, my weapon broke. I have I have twenty other weapons. This is not a big deal, and that's even before you get the master sword, which doesn't break. Yeah. Um, so it's good for a while, and then it also brings up this other bad tendency that people have that I get too, where later in the game, I have a really fucking good sword, but I don't want to use it against anything except for a boss <laughs> because it'll break. And so I pick up a Royal long sword, which is just a basic ass sword. Yeah, I use it against these random enemies. They take longer because the sword does less damage. And then I get to the final boss fight and I have not used that really awesome sword yet. So it starts out really good and with a strong idea and then really quickly just completely becomes a minor annoyance. It Mm -hmm. breaks. I have to switch to a new weapon. I'm never in any danger of running out of weapons again for the rest of the game. Mm -hmm. You know?
1: I mean, it's funny because um, the save file I just booted up like over the past few days, I have three super powerful elemental swords, right? Yeah one that does freeze, one that does burn, and one does lightning, right? And I I refused to touch them because that exact same thing, right? Uh I knew that they were going to break and they're going to break way, way too soon. And so I was like, you know, what? why not use these other weapons? Um And right. then coming back to what, like, I'm kind of just repeating what you say, but just like, suddenly, if I'm up against a bunch of tanky enemies, well, they became that much tankier, right?
0: And that's a tendency that other people will say dave break yourself of that tendency use that sword right. but the fact is a lot of these enemies really hard ones especially like fighting a Lionel, you will break almost all of your weapons going up against that thing and yeah. okay so you're saying now it's a resource test of like a hey, yes can i not get hit by its attacks uh to or can i cook enough food To restore my health and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. but also, do I have enough weapons to literally get through this fight? Mm -hmm. And it it, like, it's just not quite what it could have been. You know, it it becomes more annoying than anything.
1: I think the best part about it, honestly, was that if your weapon is, it says like, oh, weapons break or it's badly broken. I can't remember exactly what it says, right? Then if you chuck your weapon at somebody, it does like triple damage or something. Right. And Mm -hmm. that I think was one of my favorite parts was like, this
0: weapon's about to break. Great. I'm going to, you know, very, I'm going to chuck very smart by them to, to let you throw it. Um, and to give you an indication that it's about to break. Mm -hmm. So you're like, okay, time to throw this thing. And, uh, start with something else i i agree that's that's a good inclusion
1: Uh, yeah that that to me felt really good because i could like mentally prepare to transition and it does like a huge amount of damage right so typically whoever i was fighting um if they didn't die they were close to dying after i threw a weapon at them then sometimes i thought it was kind of funny it's like here i have this royal claymore let me just huck this real quickly (laughs) at somebody yeah um however it is The, I think there are some enemy, or excuse me, there are some weapon types that I felt like I hardly used despite there being like a throwing mechanic, like the boomerangs. Like I rarely use the boomerangs, or if I did, I used them as swords, you know? Same. Um, and spears. There are some javelins, right, that you could throw. Um, but maybe I can't, maybe I'm making this up. You'll have to fact check me, but I think throwing your weapon, does considerable damage to its durability, is that right? If it's not a oh, yeah.
0: um i I think it automatically breaks even unless it's like like if you hit something, I think it automatically breaks, or maybe I just didn't throw a full h p weapon you know but
1: <laughs> right but but it was a risk, right, so as much as I like yeah. that mechanic, um yeah, like throwing it and missing always felt bad, you're like, crap, there goes a ton of damage, and now I have yeah. to switch to something <laughs> else, right. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, I felt like one handed sword and shield was really my go-to for combat. Um, just so I could have parries in there, um, just so I have locking damage too, as well. Um, and also do damage. But, um, like I said, it was really, it's impossible to sort of map out where all the one handed swords are on the map. And so, I found myself switching up quite a bit, which I felt was good for me because it's very easy, I feel like, for a lot of gamers to get pigeonholed into one style you like. Like, this was my problem playing Hades, right? Love the shield, and I love the spear. Hardly tried anything else, right? Yeah. And so, I did like that the game forced me to be like, all right, try out a Halberd, right? And it was actually because of how I I liked using the Halberd in Breath of the Wild that i actually ended up doing a dark souls run where i was like you know what i liked halberd in breath of the wild what if i did a dark souls run with a halberd instead right and so it did kind of rub off me in some ways and i do appreciate that aspect of it
0: yeah that's that's one like defense that you'll hear for the weapon durability system is that it does force you to not get married to one particular type of weapon mm-hmm. and use everything that you pick up because they're all going to break at some mm-hmm. point um yeah. So uh, not to um, beat a dead horse, weapon durability has been discussed a lot. I mm-hmm. think uh, we've we've given what we need to say about that. One more thing about the combat. Um, I, I brought this up earlier, but you do fight boss fights and mini bosses uh, around the world. You fight boss fights at the end of the Divine Beasts, and you'll find mini bosses uh, around. Mm-hmm. And these are kind of two sides of the same coin, I think. They are... Um, the mini bosses, there's like four different types and you'll fight a bunch of them, uh, if you explore a lot. So the first time you see one of those, um, those golem type enemies, it's really mm-hmm. cool. And the fifth time you find one, you're like, okay, this one mm-hmm. again. Um, and the same with the bosses at the end of the divine beasts. I just think that they're too similar and none of them really feel unique. The most unique thing about them is sometimes the arena will have Things that you have to pay attention to, like try and not fall down to the floor or, uh, you know, there's one in an arena full of water and you can't swim forever, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, The other kind of really tough enemy that you fight are the Guardians, which are these kind of machines around the world. Uh, We'll talk about the sound design here in a minute, but um, they're scary. Uh, They're (laughs) extremely difficult early game Um, if you don't have that parry timing down parrying the guardian lasers is incredible. Mm -hmm. And then that feeling gets extended into some of the boss fights when they shoot lasers at you too. Um, but the guardian fights are all the same as the last guardian Mm -hmm. fight, you know? And so I talked about it with those combat shrines, but the boss fights, the mini bosses, the tough enemies out in the field, once you fought one Lionel, they're all the same. It's, it starts to get old. And I, I have to fight the guardians because they'll kill me if I don't fight them because they they shoot lasers at you. But for the rest of them, like if I find one of the the Cyclops Mm -hmm. mini boss out in the world, I didn't fight it because I've already fought four of them. I don't need to fight it and it's not super fun and it's exactly the same as the last one. And it's just kind of like one more time where it it does kind of feel copy Mm -hmm. and pasted. Like you couldn't give this one a different attack from the other one, you know?
1: Yeah, I get that. Um, the mini bosses, I, I agree in that, like, if, if you look at them, like, an individual case study, like, I like the Golem. I like the Knocks. I like the Lionel. I like the Guardian, right? Yeah. But when, for example, um, you're going through Hyrule field, right? And there just this like, seven Guardians. Like, you look through across the field and you can count them up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And you're like, crap. Do I have to take the long way around or do I have to fight all of these? And sometimes at the same time. Now, um, I will say though, parrying a guardian laser is immensely satisfying, right? Like, yes, I think, um, in terms of it's not, it's not up there with the Makiri counter and Sekiro, right? Um, that's (laughs) probably one of my favorite, most satisfying like combat maneuvers in video games, but man, it's up there. Like parrying a guardian laser is up there. Um, like you said, we'll talk about sound design in a second. I think that's a huge part of that experience, right? Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, like the Hinoxes, for example, um, I always saw them like after the, the initial like excitement of fighting this new enemy type, I always saw them as like a resource dump, right? And that's kind of what these mini bosses turn into, right? Is okay. I know with the Hinox, I'm going to get a bunch of like, um, monster crafting parts that are really high quality. If I fight a golem, I know I'm going to get a huge amount of jewels or gems here or whatever it is. And, um, which is kind of a shame. A part of that is I feel like you can't avoid it because that's just how video games are. Right. Um, but I agree that like I, you know, for example, there's one Hynox. It's like just west of, uh, central Hyrule. It's like up in this pond. And I remember finding like looking on the map and I was like, Oh, there's got to be something in this pond right here. I'm going to go check it out. And so Mm -hmm. I climb up there and I see it. And I was like, okay, it's a high knocks. Okay. Like, I'll do this fight, you know? And so despite how much fun I think it is, like we've talked about several times, we brought up just like being being able to like get from one place to another. and And it's exciting. You're like, okay, I climbed here. I did this. And then sometimes the mini bosses, unfortunately we would just be like that moment of, Oh, this is my reward. Dang. I was really Mm -hmm. hoping for a different reward
3: here.
0: Yeah. I think one of those mini bosses is one of the worst rewards you can find. Uh, I would rather find a Korok every time (laughs) uh, than one of these mini bosses. hundred percent. I guess the last thing about gameplay before we get into talking about the music and sound is um, the cooking and the crafting uh, in the game. You do not find uh, potions, um, and you often don't find like hearts around the world like you might in another Zelda game. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you do is you find crafting materials and you find food. So instead of finding a heart, you'll find an apple. And if you mm-hmm. eat the apple, you'll recover one heart. But if you cook with the apple, uh, you will make a baked apple, which restores more than one heart. And this extends pretty deeply with lots of different ingredients, lots of different uh recipes. And you can make elixirs uh, out of monster parts and stuff like that. Um, And this is something that other games have started to copy. Mm -hmm. Another game I covered on the show, Eastward, uh, directly said that they took their cooking system from Breath of the Wild, a very similar type of thing. Uh, So how did you feel about the cooking? Did you dig this?
1: It's funny you bring up Eastward because when I first played Eastward, it's immediately what I thought. I was like, okay, this is taken straight out of Breath of the Wild's book yeah Um, and to their credit they they were like yeah we took that straight out of breath oh yeah so (laughs) yeah they were very open about it which is always nice right um it's it's funny because the first time i played this game i actually rarely skipped the cooking jingle because i liked it so much but Mm -hmm. after like 20 hours i was like okay i've listened to this a thousand times i need to skip it now right yeah um i i thought I think you're right in that like a lot of games are like, hey, Breath of the Wild has this really good crafting system, right? And I think in a lot of ways it does have a really great crafting system. I think it's super easy to find ingredients. Um This is why I will, you know, die on the hill that Breath of the Wild does not have an empty world because ingredients are abundant, right? Yep. For food, even for monster parts, and it even makes you know, killing a Bokoblin or going into a Bokoblin camp that much more enticing because you can get monster parts out of it, right? Um, Even I really disliked the bats, right? But I was like, you know what? I'll even kill some bats for some monster parts right now. Um I think one of the good things about this is that um some of the monster parts were relatively, like, reducible in the sense that like you just needed x you needed monster parts you don't necessarily need these specific ones Mm -hmm. now of course like different monster parts will produce different effects when you're making elixirs um because that's what you use monster parts for and then you use you know edible ingredients for for different meals um and so i would say by and large i did enjoy it now um i do wish it was a little more streamlined in the sense of like uh, so I can more easily predict, okay, if I make this meal, how many hearts is it going to yield? Is it gonna give me these specific stat boosts? And I get that there's like a recipe that you can look at, um, but I wish it was just a little more straightforward that I didn't have to look at a recipe to kind of figure out exactly what what I was going to get when I crafted some things mm-hmm. some I mean the dubious food I think is hilarious, right like <laughs> yeah, you make a food that doesn't work with the game's coated recipes well you get a piece of crap and it's worth one heart like (laughs) like i thought that was funny and i think it made it was a funny reward every time i try to cook something new and it sucked so overall i think i enjoyed it i thought it was a good way to get buffs um and it was wild Uh, you could get like up to like 15 minutes i feel like of you know heat resistance and things like that Mm -hmm. this is the last thing i'll say is that this is one of the few moments that there is a relatively noticeable no baked into the game and it's that you can't stack effects infinitely (laughs) i feel like you could really break this game and and so i do agree with that decision but sometimes it'd be a little frustrating where it's like you know what the foods i have here all give cold resistance but i need heat resistance here and i'm gonna have to end up eating two foods to get all the health i want back plus the status effect i want Mm -hmm. so I mean, it was fine. It wasn't too big of a deal, but sometimes you, I'd run into that where it's was like, well, I'm wasting food here.
0: Yeah. It's interesting you brought up this as a response to people who say the, empty, the open world is empty because um, I agree with you. And this is something that a lot of game designers have started doing in the last like 10 years is putting crafting systems in their games because crafting ingredients is an easy way to put treasure out in the world. Yeah. Um, it's much easier to put a tree full of apples somewhere instead of thinking of a unique reward for exploring to that place, which is not to say that apples are a bad reward because in this game, they restore health. And that's, you need that because especially again, early in the game, it's tough. And um, when I went into a divine beast, I would prepare, or if I am going to go fight a Lionel, I need to prepare for that fight. I need to cook a bunch of food and kind of get myself ready for it. And that that feels good. Battle prep is fun uh, for me in video games. Yeah, mm-hmm. So find, getting a bunch of food that uh, gives me a bunch of bonus health or restores my stamina because I really want to climb up that mountain and see what's on the top. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff like that is really good. So we talked about the treasure earlier of finding a shrine or finding a Korok or something like that. What's also really rewarding to go somewhere and find a bunch of hearty truffles oh, and you're yes. like, Oh, I can make like some really badass food with this mm-hmm. always feels good. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I huge agree with that. Or like, um, typically for like Lionel fights, especially like my first Lionel fight, if I found like a trove of iron shrooms, which I knew would boost defense, I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. I'm going to spend the next three minutes and I'm going to scour this patch here and get all the iron shrooms I possibly can. Yeah. And I think that's how, um, Breath of the Wild does this crafting mechanic well is because ingredients are plentiful. That to me is a huge, huge boon, uh, to compare it. I mean, just cause Eastward's on the mind. Um, I did plenty of cooking in Eastward, but I didn't feel like ingredients were plentiful. Right. And so. No, not really. So when I made a meal, right, it was like, I think a boss is about to come up. You know, I just, you know, the telltale signs There's a checkpoint p- right here. You can restore your health here. There's a cooking station here. Right. I'm like, okay, yep. something big is coming up. The game's preparing me for I'm going to cook all my meals now. Um mm-hmm. Whereas in Breath of the Wild, I felt like, okay, you know, oh, look, there's a stable coming up. Great. I know there's a place I can cook. As I've been sort of walking through the world, I've probably picked up 60 different ingredients. Let's take a few minutes to, to cook. Or it's like, oh, look, this stable is right next to us pond. Let's just go get a bunch of fish and then I can make a bunch of fish, you know, meals right here. Yep. So I, I found it to be really well done and I, I hesitate to think of an example of a game that I feel like has done something uh, that has implemented crafting in an open world, quite the same way. I would say like an Elden ring, this exists for sure but i hardly touched the crafting in comparison to like the cooking in breath of the wild for example it was so much more beneficial and necessary i think
0: yeah it just to compare those two games um elden ring to me felt like you're crafting for your consumables it, it's solving the problem in that game that i have in other games where i don't want to use my consumables because they're finite yeah elden ring solved that by letting me craft my consumables um, but not for health and stamina, mm-hmm. because the Estus and stuff, Estus uh, Flasks of Crimson Tears are mm-hmm. finite in that game. Um, in this game, you're crafting for your health, your defense, your stamina, etc. And I I can't think of another open world game that feels as good to craft stuff. Because I'm the type of person where if a crafting system is e- extraneous and not valuable, I will not do it. Yeah. I don't like crafting unless it's valuable to me um there are a lot of linear games where crafting is very very good uh like in the last of us mm-hmm. and stuff like that but in an open world game again the witcher 3 i don't craft shit in the witcher 3 there's no reason to i was trying to think if you could craft in the witcher 3 and i've beat that game <laughs> yeah you craft um you don't cook but you craft weapons and stuff like right can yeah. craft weapons i don't do any of that i'm gonna find a better sword in five minutes yeah so in breath of the wild it's great it's it's another like feather in this game's cap i feel like just to say like hey they solved how to make crafting valuable in an Mm -hmm. open world everyone this is something you should steal this is great
1: yeah and um if i were to give my reasons why i think crafting works so well in breath of the wild is one ingredients are plentiful um yep two ingredients are always useful right there's Some ingredients clearly are more useful than others, especially when you're making specific foods or elixirs, but you can always dump something extra into the pot, right? Um, And then finally, I would just say like the products, like the actual things that you craft have noticeable benefit to gameplay, right? Um, Whether that be some sort of resistance, attack boost, huge attack boost, you know, restoring heart, like... It was very easy to define and see how exactly a food was going to help me. You brought up the example of mm-hmm. The Last of Us. The example I would throw in there is like a plague tale. Mm-hmm. Um, in a plague tale, I would go out of my way to find, you know, those levels are very linear. But I would definitely go out of my way to explore some of the, you know, trickier parts of those levels. Because I was like, if there are crafting resources in here, they're going to be a massive boon to how I'm going to finish this level and then go through subsequent levels.
0: Yep in an in a linear game like that they can finally tune how many resources you get and assume the power level that you're going to be at at a specific part in the game Mm -hmm. or prepare you for a specific encounter in breath of the wild it's open so they chose to err on the side of like let's just let them have as many ingredients as you want yeah you will find so many you will like you might run out of stuff but like hey go just go look around for 15 minutes you'll find a shitload of mushrooms and stuff to make a bunch more food yeah kill some animals get some meat you'll be fine catch some Mm -hmm. fish it'll be all right so yeah let's uh listen to some music and then when we come back we'll touch on the last part of the non-spoiler section (laughs) this is a beefy non-spoiler section today uh talk about the music So we saved music for last um, in this non-spoiler part because this game has a reputation of it kind of giving the backseat to the music in contrast to other games in the series. Uh, Music in this game is composed by uh, three people who have the principal credit, uh, Manaka Kataoka, Yasuaki Iwata, and Hajime Wakai. I hope I'm pronouncing those half correctly. Um... Music's super important to the Zelda series. Anyone who's a fan of The Legend of Zelda will surely point to the music as one of the reasons why, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Um, This game is really long and you spend a lot of time out in the field. And I think it makes a really wise choice of really backseating the music to let the fact that you're out alone in nature Mm -hmm. take the forefront. And then when, when it's time, the music really roars back into the scene and it makes those moments when the music picks up uh have a lot more impact i think mm-hmm. whereas other zelda games will have um really recognizable songs that you would associate with different parts of the game yeah this one will just have moments where it's i remember when i stepped out of the cave of awakening and the music swelled up, and it was this amazing moment. And I remember in Hyrule Castle how that level has music, and it's incredible. It it makes a bunch of these memorable moments, but in its own way.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. I love the music here. I still regularly, there's some YouTube video, it's like an hour of chill music from Breath of the Wild that I put on while I'm working. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was a huge fan of the decisions that they went uh, with here. Um, and they were, went really creative in some of these arrangements. You know, um, there are some tunes that um, are super well known, for example, just in, in Zelda, right across the franchise and halfway through like a song, you won't even recognize it's that song until later. So I think um, stripping it down to a piano was a fantastic decision. Um So much of the game's soundtrack to me is just also orchestrated by the crickets chirping or like cicada buzzing, you know, uh-huh. or the breeze running through grass just as much as the, you know, piano keys sort of uh, quietly tinkling along in the background. But like you yep. said, um the, the range of emotion in all the different songs here is immense and it's immensely powerful. I think, to contrast sort of those peaceful mushroom picking moments with fighting a guardian, which (laughs) yeah, which I think is just A plus, you know, just top tier when it comes to music and creating a real sense of fear of I'm gonna die right now. Right. Especially Mm -hmm. when you're mushroom picking and then suddenly you hear, you know, that like quick chirping uh the guardian lock onto you and then the music rushes in and you're like, I am gonna die. I am not prepared yeah. for this fight, you know? I was just trying to get mushrooms right now.
0: Yeah, and it's worse when you um when you don't know where it's coming from. When you're you're climbing a tower and suddenly that music kicks in, you're like, oh my God, where is yeah. this thing? I <laughs> I am in danger. You know? It, it's really excellent. The sound design, of course, like the Guardian sound effects are creepy. We talked about that parry. When you parry something, you get a great sound effect, super satisfying. Um, And then the environmental sounds like you talked about too. So when you're out exploring, there's no music. Uh, Maybe you get a few piano keys Mm -hmm. every now and then. But what you do get is the wind rustling like through the trees or animals or uh, when a storm rolls in, you'll get that. And it's fantastic. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I really love that. It really helped, I think, with immersion in the game, for sure. Um, just because, I, uh, I mean, I, I love the outdoors. I love being on mountains, for example, just hiking. And I love those moments when you stop for like a bit of a trail mix or whatever it is, where you don't even hear your boots hitting the path anymore, right? All yeah. you hear is just the wind kind of going through. It's this wonderful, peaceful moment that really, envelops you i feel like in the environment and i feel like breath of the wild with this artistic decision to really scale back music and exploration did a lot i think it really really helped sort of immerse you in the natural world of hyrule yeah so i really really agree there um but yeah um the hyrule castle music just to talk on this without you know saying any spoilers yeah (laughs) yeah Probably one of, I mean, this game uses music beautifully as it is, but man, going through Hyrule Castle is such a music, like, trip. Just going mm-hmm. is so beautifully done, I think, and it really hits all the emotional notes of what it is to be in Hyrule Castle. But also this is, I think, the music tying into environmental storytelling where the music, I think, beautifully replicates what has happened to Hyrule Castle.
0: Yes. It, it, yeah. 100%. It's 100%. Especially as you
1: go through and you're like reading through some of the history logs there. And this is the final thing I'll say. Cause I don't, I know we're not spoiling yet, but we're getting close to right. that territory, right? Um, just the way that the music sort of accompanies what is happening and what you are learning as you're in Hyrule Castle, I think was just so remarkably done.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're not spending a ton of time talking about music. We waited until the almost the two-hour mark of this podcast to talk about it. it it's There's less music in this game. Mm-hmm. It's not at the forefront like it is in Ocarina of Time or um, Link's Awakening or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's not to say that it doesn't do an incredible job at what they wanted from the music and the sound design. Yeah. So I uh, do want to give it its props. Now it's time at the end of the spoiler, the non-spoiler section, uh, to answer the question, who would you recommend Breath of the Wild to?
1: I would recommend Breath of the Wild to anybody who wants to play one game for the next four to six months. (laughs) Um, Yes. I mean... It's funny, I mean, Dave and I, we have this problem because of just being a podcaster about video games, especially because we do weekly episodes dedicated to specific games, which the mm-hmm. the downside to that is that we don't necessarily get to play games exactly how we want to, right? Um Maybe you do a better job of pacing yourself than Cameron and I do, right, <laughs> when it comes to getting through games. Um But I would say, you know, speaking for myself here, not for Dave necessarily – You know, I do not represent the majority of gamers at all in terms of how I play games because I'm always thinking about deadlines and podcast episodes and how I want to talk about this. And with some specific games, it's like, hey, if we don't put out an episode on this quickly, no one's going to care. right? Um, uh, Which so anyway, this the Breath of the Wild, I feel like is one of those games that, as we mentioned, six years later, people are still finding discoveries in this game. Um, if you are playing this for the first time, just let it be the only game you're playing, right? And and let yourself have those discoveries and share those discoveries. There's still a really strong community that is so in love with the exploration of Hyrule and Breath of the Wild. That is very mm-hmm. easy to be connected with a lot of people. And I just think, I, yeah, I recommend this game for anybody who's looking for an open world game. Somebody who doesn't really like survival because survival is very light in this game. Um and if you want to dedicate just throw yourself into a single game, then Breath of the Wild is the game for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I echo that. Um the way I get around podcasting and deadlines getting in the way of my uh gaming is that I I don't schedule an episode until I'm ready to, and I usually finish a game several weeks before we record. So I, I beat Breath of the Wild like three, four weeks ago. And I also record episodes several months before they air. Uh, so that's, that's my process. Um, but you're right. I am not a typical video game player either because I'm always playing lots of games. Mm -hmm. So even if I'm not like stressed for time, like I need to beat breath of the wild because I'm recording in two days or something like that, I'm playing breath of the wild alongside other games. And then there's another game coming out next week that I really want to play. So mm-hmm. like, I need to make time for that too. And for the average video game player, they're not playing four games at the same time. Mm-hmm. They're playing one game. And I think, like you said, this is an excellent game for someone like that, or for someone who plays one game a year or two games a year mm-hmm. and just kind of like plays a little bit in their free time. Cause they have better balance of their hobbies than I do. <laughs> This is a great game for that. So that's an excellent um observation there. I recommend Breath of the Wild to anyone who would possibly enjoy an open world game. It is as simple as that mm. because this is the ideal for an open world. It is a game that is fun to explore and rewarding to explore because if if exploring and traversing is not fun in an open world, and you're not rewarded for doing that. Then why the hell are you playing an open world game? Yeah. Why are you making an open world game if it's not like that? Mm-hmm. And I think that like, if someone wants to play their first open world game, Breath of the Wild, incredible for it. Yeah. If someone is tired of checking things off of uh, a checklist in the open worlds, Breath of the Wild does not have that mm-hmm. unless you're going to try and do all 120 shrines and get all fucking 900 Korok <laughs> So yeah, easy recommendation for most people. Um, unless you're like, I don't have time to play long video games and I don't like open worlds, then then don't play breath of the wild. It's long mm-hmm. video game has an open world. Everyone else. Like I, I really like, I know there's been a lot of individual elements throughout the episode that both you and I and Cameron also, talked about Mm
3: -hmm.
0: where we were like, yeah, this kind of sucks, but the total package, uh, when you talk about the experience of playing it is like, to me, magical, I think. And this episode is going to come out um, about a week and a half or so before Tears of the Kingdom, um, hoping that it doesn't get delayed in the meantime. And Mm -hmm. I I can't wait to see what they did Mm -hmm. um, because this was such a magical experience and they've had six years to work on it and iterate and get more creative. I, I can't wait.
1: Yeah. Um, it, it's funny because, um, even in our predictions episode in our podcast, I mean, we talked about how Tears of the Kingdom will be critically acclaimed, right? Um, we have other concerns with it, but that's, that's, you know, for, for another time. But I think you're mm-hmm. right in that, um, they've given themselves lots of time with this game. Uh, with, with the sequel to Breath of the Wild and as much criticism as the three of us have sort of, uh, leveraged against Breath of the Wild, um, I think it's relatively indisputable that this game has a really significant legacy in gaming, particularly in open world games. And, um, that really cannot be ignored. And so maybe that'd be my final person to rec or recommendation, right? Is that. If you're looking for a game that people are going to be talking about 20 years from now, play Breath of the Wild. It's it's never yeah. going to leave the gaming conversation.
0: That's that's a that's a good point. If you're the type of person who has not played Breath of the Wild, but you value playing the games that like literally change people's like hobbies and things that they enjoy, like it did for me. If you, it, I like to go on like the gaming history tour sometimes and say like, I never played Metal Gear Solid. I, I want to see what it is. Mm-hmm. If that's Breath of the Wild for you, what are you waiting for? Like, get in, see if you like it. Uh, the worst that's going to happen is you don't like a video game, and that's fine. There's people who don't like Breath of the Wild. Most of them inhabit your pre-order bonus Discord server, <laughs> apparently. But it's it's cool. But I do think it's something that should be, um, should be tried. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think uh, I think this game still stands. I'll just my last comment. I think this this game still stands the test of time. I think it still holds up. Will continue to be, you know, one of the best open world games ever made. And I think what makes it that way, just as my last comment is is the it's that physics sandbox. It's the playground, right? Nintendo found the fun, and they found the fun by taking these elements that existed like in indie games and in other places and added it like into their Zelda and their like triple A Nintendo way. So, thanks so much for having me on the show. Sorry, I got to jump. Absolutely. Little housekeeping
0: before the spoiler wall here. Uh this might be the latest spoiler wall in uh Tales from the Backlog history. Got a lot to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Jake, I'm going to put the links to the pre-order bonus podcast down in the show notes, but is there anything else anywhere else that you would like to direct people for the show
1: i mean we are most active on twitter and on discord and so the discord is really free to anybody we're pretty lax in there for sure when gaming news kind of comes up that's when uh people get uh buzzing and the discord get topping but when things are slow the discord slow so just you know this won't take over your entire life for sure <laughs> uh, so, so, I mean, and it does, I actually really appreciate that about the, the Discord. We have a great community there, although it is the running joke that really nobody there likes Breath of the Wild. So if you don't join the Discord after listening to this episode that, you know, no one can blame you. Um, like I said, <laughs> uh, at preorder cast, um, I actually run that, uh, that Twitter. Uh, we're on there very actively. And then finally, we do have a Patreon. Um, we have two tiers. We have a tip jar and then we have a $5 tier where um, I put out weekly episodes, indie impressions. They're really short. They're 15 to 20-minute episodes just on indie games that I'm playing or that I've beaten. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, we put extended episodes on there as well. And then Cameron, with the rare triple A impression, will, will post something up there as well.
0: Nice. Yeah, we did one of those indie impression episodes about Chained Echoes, uh, which went out to the public, everyone could listen to that episode, yes. but it is hosted on the Patreon. So mm-hmm. if you like Chained Echoes, uh, that is a good place to go because Jake and I talked about the story, had a great conversation there. Yeah. And that was longer than 15 minutes. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, much, much longer. Four Tales from the Backlog, same stuff as always. Uh, our Discord server is always going on. There's lots of people in there talking about games and movies and all kinds of stuff. Uh, another great community. We would love to have you. Uh, Come in and talk about Breath of the Wild. Uh, Breath of the Wild is a game that if you've played it, you have some sort of opinion on. So I think people are going to be talking about it this week. Um, And then Tears of the Kingdom coming up. you want to jump in and talk about how you're liking Tears of the Kingdom, that's a great place to do that. Also have a Patreon on this uh, show, um, $2 per month minimum. Uh, We'll get you bonus episodes, voting on games upcoming on the show and a bunch of other cool stuff. Um, also feel free to check out my other show, which is called a top three podcast. Every episode is a top three list or a draft or something fun like that. Um, that is a much different vibe from this show. Uh, so I think it's a lot of fun. We'd love to have you check that out. So Jake and I are going to take a break. When we come back, it's going to be the full spoiler talk for breath of the wild. Jake and I are back, and we're talking spoilers for Breath of the Wild, and uh, this is is interesting. We spent over two hours in the non-spoiler section. I think this is going to be one of the short-ish, short in air quotes, because it's me and it's this <laughs> show, um, spoiler sections, because it's like, I, I personally don't think, I think there's a couple of like really cool moments that are great to see and experience for yourself, but it's not like... Like, you already know where the story's going. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to beat Ganon at the end. And there's just not a whole lot of like traditional spoiler stuff uh, for the game. So, anyway, um, let's talk about the story uh, and where it goes. You pick up a lot of stuff via lore notes um you can read notes uh, people leave them in their cabins or in Hyrule Castle at the end mm-hmm. um the other way that you get the story and this is an active thing that you have to go seek out is by going to these locations that will trigger link's memory um and you'll you'll watch a little cutscene flashback of um something that happened in the past it's usually link and zelda together before the calamity so these are optional i think there's like 16 or 20 of them something like that yeah Uh, did you do these not all of them um (laughs) yeah me either
1: i mean part of it i feel like is you're given a snapshot of the world of where you can find the memory and if you find that like the actual location within the world and then you'll see like a glowing indicator of like hey if you stand here then a cutscene will happen and you'll be able to like relive a memory um yeah but the game is massive you know, and uh I felt like with most of the game's exploration, you could look for a shrine and you could sort of predict where a shrine would be. Or you could look at the topography of the map and predict, okay, if I go over to this thing, I bet something interesting is happening here. But with the memories, you're just given a screenshot. And yes, there are mm-hmm. some like I can't like like really strong landmarks in some of them. But some of them I was like, listen, it's probably in this third of the map. I'm not going to go like trudging along, <laughs> right. like specifically looking for this. If I stumble across it, Hey, fantastic. Maybe I'll keep it in the back of my mind that like, Oh, I'm going to this area of the game. There might be a memory around here. I'll keep an eye out for it, but no more.
0: Right. Yeah. It, and it, it's the, it's the more difficult version of finding specific locations. Cause you're not finding the location in the photograph. You're finding the location. The photograph was taken from. Yes. Which you, not only do you have to find that landmark, but you have to get that, that same angle on it. So when I just by myself without a guide tried to find these, I struck out almost every time. It was just really hard. Yeah. And I found my most recent playthrough, I found like five of them, but it was just by accident. I would just be walking somewhere and or I would see like an interesting landmark or something. Um, but literally sometimes by accident. I would walk somewhere and be like, oh, glowing spot on the ground. Oh, memory. Okay, we'll go check that out. Mm-hmm. So I think those memories are are interesting. Some of them are pretty um, emotional, as emotional as a Zelda game can be, I mm-hmm. feel like. The ones that I thought were most interesting were the ones when they're building the Guardians because um, the Guardians were part of the Hyrule Army's efforts against Ganon, and they immediately became corrupted. Mm-hmm it's you know as robot stories go right right um so it was kind of cool to see a little backstory of them like building the guardians and people being like yeah, i don't really trust these things and someone else is like no nah, it's fine it'll be okay mm-hmm. um so that was kind of cool i didn't do a ton of these we don't need to spend a, a ton of time um there's a couple other memorable things i also don't have specific divine beasts to talk about uh number one because they're all we talked about them. The, the puzzles are not super memorable. The bosses are not super memorable. The stories surrounding the Divine Beasts, like you meet a hero uh, you, or you meet a leader of one of the villages of the four races. Um, you talk to them. They tell you about the hero who died fighting the Calamity. You wrestle back control of the Divine Beast. You kind of talk to the hero's spirit. And then that part of the Game is over. So those are like fine, you know, story-wise, but not super memorable, I don't think. I, I
1: honestly think like the the heroes associated with each of the Divine Beasts, like the actual story themselves was okay. I think what it did for world building was much more impressive, right? Where mm-hmm. you say you kind of look back a 100 years ago of like what happened during the Calamity, what the hero's role was in it. And then very rarely in these types of stories do we actually get stories of failure. And these are right. four okay, heroes yeah. that lost. They died. And Link did too. Link lost. And, and Link, he died. Yeah, Link lost, right? I mean, and um I think the one that probably resonates or not resonates, but the one that's most memorable to me is Mipha's story from Zora do- Zora's Domain. Mhm. There's always been like a little like okay is Link involved with the Zora or not right? <laughs> and So they br- <laughs> yeah. they bring that back for Breath of the Wild with Mifa, and um, you know hers I felt like her loss felt the most tragic to me because her father and her little brother survived her, you know after she died, and so when mm-hmm. you get to Zora's domain, there's there's hurt. You know, there's there's a lack of emotional resolution for having lost Mifa in this battle against Ganon. And then Link shows up without any memory of it. And some people get a little miffed about that. And so, Mm -hmm. like, the actual story of loss itself, I thought was okay, Right. But like in repeating myself. But what it did for the world building, what it did for me as a player thinking, Oh, Zora's domain, there's some people that are actually really divided about who I am as a person and as a hero. And I'm going to have to kind of shoulder that a little bit as I'm going through this story. Now, um, I'm going to say this because it's behind the spoiler wall, but did you play Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity? Um, I played the demo for it and I hated it. So they took what I think was a beautiful world building moment and they just kicked it in the nuts. Like (laughs) I think, I think Hyrule warriors age of calamity just, you know, and we've been critical of the overall story, but I really like this story of loss and, um, you know, partial recovery and different things emerging from this loss and from this failure. And I feel like Hyrule warriors age of calamity just slapped it all across the face. Um, which is, cause it's a prequel, right? It's a prequel. It, I mean, it takes place a hundred years when the calamity happens. And so right. I went into it fully expecting like a Star Wars Rogue One moment, right? Yeah. Where you have yeah. this really bittersweet, but ultimately tragic sacrifice that we've all known about as audience members the whole time through. We just get to live it, right? With those characters. Yeah. And Hyrule Warriors just really, really, pulled the rug out from any sort of emotional weight there. So I'm, of course I'm sounding very bitter because I'm still bitter about it. But, um, but like coming back to the divine beasts and the spoilers of this game, Mifa's story. And I think her loss and how that impacted Zora's domain was done really well in breath of the wild. Mm -hmm. And when you get to the other three stories, they're just not, there isn't the same emotional depth, right? Yeah. You have new leaders who are sort of like, descendants of these heroes of the divine beasts but i just don't think there's uh nearly the same level of emotional impact with their stories as there is with mifas
0: yep agreed so um it, it, it is a good point that this game kind of puts on front street right at the beginning that you lost and mm-hmm. link to this point link doesn't lose every single game is Ganon appears, you go up and you fight Ganon and you mm-hmm. win. And that's the end of the game, but not in this game, I guess like you lose in the middle of Ocarina of time, but that's <laughs> not the end of the game. So right. that is a cool aspect of the story for sure. And that's, it's really all I have to say about the story uh, until getting to the final boss. So mm-hmm. a couple stops along the way that I thought were very memorable. Um, I mentioned this earlier without getting into specifics, but, If I had to make a top three moments or things in Breath of the Wild, the Great Plateau is great, Mm -hmm. Hyrule Castle is great, and then the other one would be Eventide Island for me, Mm, which is the island where they take away all your stuff, and it's a challenge to, like I said in the non-spoiler part, final exam for -hmm. the game. Do you understand how to use everything available to you? To defeat this challenge,
1: Eventide Island. Um, I did it my first playthrough, and it was a struggle for me to go back to zero. Right? It's
0: tough. Yeah, it is tough, and it is way tougher than I thought it would be. But because, uh, real quick, like you, you can't go there until you have a ton of stamina, or at least you know how to craft like insane stamina potions. Mm-hmm. So by the point you're able to go to Eventide Island. Uh you're like you're powered up. You have a bunch of cool weapons probably. Mm-hmm. You you have a bunch of food that you've cooked to kind of make yourself not invincible, but for all intents and purposes invincible. And then even Tide Island is like, nope, back to zero. Three hearts, um no weapons, no clothing, nothing. Yeah. Uh so it's tough. I agree.
1: It it was really tough. It was a struggle for me to complete it. When I did it, it was immensely satisfying. Yep. And so I think it was a, a total triumph, right? Um, and just getting that out of the way, I don't plan on doing it ever again. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> like, like I thought it was a really satisfying experience, but I just, for me, I feel like um, going back to it and knowing how I play games when I replay games, I tend to be more impatient. And that, I think Eventide Island, it is a final exam and it does test your patience and your willingness to really... Utilize nothing to accomplish a lot, right? Like you have to use a lot of ingenuity and creativity to get through it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it maybe, okay, maybe I'll take back the absolute. Maybe I'd go back and play it, but I definitely have to be in the right mindset of looking for a specific type of challenge because I do think it is a challenge, but I'm super glad that it was included and I'm super glad that I did it because
0: there's a really immensely satisfying payoff when you do complete it. Interesting. Like, so on this replay, I was looking forward to exploring, but specific things I was looking forward to, I was looking forward to the castle and even tide. Mm. And I like could not wait. And I would go back there and try it and be like, okay, I don't have enough stamina yet. I need to come back after I do a couple <laughs> more upgrades. Like I was raring to get back to this um, because it is a test of like, do you understand how to use the runes to the best of your abilities? Mm-hmm. Um, do you understand all of those other interactions, um, they set up so many ways for you to be creative. So, like, there's camps of enemies on the island and you don't have enough weapons to just fight them straight up. Yeah. So, do you know how to beat them without that stuff? And I, I just, I cherish that kind of gameplay challenge to like use what I know about the systems and how they interact and everything. It's really great. Now, one thing I was not looking forward to. And I actually didn't do my second time was Terrytown, which is the most famous <laughs> yes. side quest in Breath of the Wild. So before I say why uh, I was not looking forward to this, um, did you do Terrytown and how do you feel about it?
1: Uh, I really like the idea of Terrytown because I think mm-hmm. uh, the idea of it does contribute to what I think, you know, Breath of the Wild's cool world building, right? Okay. A brand new town is going to be constructed here. This is. We can see how life goes on in the wake of Hyrule's destruction. But it is the craziest grind fest, you know? Um, I felt like you had to do so many steps and gather so many things to make it happen that I just didn't complete it.
0: Same. Um, My first time, I thought it was cool. Like you said, it's, it's a... You're building a community. You're helping to heal society and stuff like that. And I thought that was cool and, like... There is some emotional content in the Terrytown story. Mm-hmm. But like you said, it is a hellacious grind <sighs> to get the materials to do it. And I didn't finish it my first time. And then when I was replaying it, even with the idea of like, I would like to talk about it on the podcast, I was like, I'm not doing all that collecting for this. And then I forgot to look up like even how the quest line ends because apparently i don't care enough to see what happens at the end um but a lot of people seem to like it i i don't i don't get it it seems (laughs) like if you're playing breath of the wild for 200 or 300 hours and you're going to accumulate the resources to finish the quest then yeah maybe there's something rewarding at Mm -hmm. the end and you'll feel great about what you built but not me like Mm -hmm. I, i could not care about it you know um
1: uh, there is a speed running category of Breath of the Wild. It's one of my favorites. It's the dog percent. Um, okay. <laughs> there are 16 dogs throughout Breath of the Wild where if you feed them enough, they will lead you to buried treasure. Okay. And the buried treasure actually won't spawn in the map until the dog is happy. Right. And it, it takes like two to three apples to feed a dog and make it happen. And, uh, one of the dogs is in Terrytown. And so in order to complete that category, you have to complete oh. <laughs> Tarrytown, which, uh, is the only way that I've actually seen Tarrytown be completed. Um, mm-hmm. and so it, it's, I love watching it. Like it's one of my favorite categories of Breath of the Wild speedruns. I love watching it and it's kind of funny because when you, when they were routing it, right, they had to route in the quickest way to complete Terrytown. And I'm sure Terrytown percent is its own category at this point, right? Because it is known (laughs) for being such a grind. Uh But I just love how like, okay, this is a a cute, fun little mechanic. If you make a dog happy, and they're mostly at different stables throughout Hyrule, they'll lead you to Mm -hmm. bury treasure, right? And that's a cool, fun thing. And then um, to have one of those dogs locked behind Terrytown, just maybe laugh. I was like, <laughs> okay. And so, in order to actually do this, and I haven't checked the last I was following that category more seriously. I think it was like a like a two hour
0: uh run. I think the category was just under two hours. Jeez, it's um, it's a crazy grind. And, um, that's, that's all I have to say about Terrytown. Um, <laughs> if you are a fan of Terrytown, listener, I'm, I'm very happy for you. Uh, but not for me. Uh, Jake, is there anything you want to talk about? Like spoiler wise before talking about going to Hyrule castle?
1: I don't think so. And and, and that's just kind of the thing. Like it, it's hard to come up with to think of a really strong list of a bunch of spoilers here because, um, I don't, I, Oh, wait a second. Hmm. I, I mentioned earlier that I would bring this up in in this section in particular. Yeah. And that's the Yiga clan. Oh, the hideout. The hideout. Yeah. There's one section of this game I can say, you know, full-chested that I hate. Yeah. And it is the Yiga clan hideout stealth section. It is such a monkey wrench into what the rest of the game is, right? It's this it's everything I dislike about stealth games, and it must be completed in order to uh, get the the Thunderhelm. I think it's called, right? Mm-hmm. For the Gerudo uh, Desert um, yep. Divine Beast. So you have to do it, and it just drove me absolutely bonkers. The good things to come out of that, the silver lining, is that there's a ton of resources in there
0: oh yeah you're set for mighty bananas for the rest of your playthrough for yeah.
1: the rest of your playthrough and it's like one of the best ingredients to boost attack i think mm-hmm. and you get like 50 to 60 of them in there you get a ton of gems you get what i think is a, a pretty funny gimmick boss fight yep um with the yiga clan leader but it's, the actual
0: the it's process one of the of best boss so
1: fights cool. in the game like straight up <laughs> It is, it is so funny because, um, it, it's true. You know, we couldn't mention all this because it is a relatively big spoiler, but like, you actually do get like enemy variety. You get like a very, I feel like traditional boss fight as uh-huh. well. Yep. Um, and it is very much its own boss fight. And, um, the Yiga clan leader, Koga, is it? No, is that from Pokemon? I'm blanking on his name.
0: Anyway, Koga is from Pokemon.
1: So it might be Hoga. Koga is remember. from Pokemon. Yeah, freak. I can't remember his name. But anyway, um, it's another moment where I think the writers were pretty funny, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, just, but I feel like mechanically, in terms of gameplay, that stealth section is such a monkey wrench into this slow paced, wonderful exploration game. And then suddenly I have to do stealth. And if I get caught, I get sent back to the beginning of a section. Yeah. And you can't fight your way through. I tried my first playthrough. I tried so hard to brute force my way through that. And I just could not. Yeah.
0: It's it's um kind of an adage at this point talking about stealth games. But a, a stealth game is only as good as what happens once you're seen, you know. So yeah. in it's it's why like I played Metal Gear Solid one and I I didn't like the stealth because once you get caught, you're you're dead, basically. Yeah. But stealth games that I do like, like Dishonored and uh, Deathloop, Immersive Sims in general, when you're playing stealthy, Prey, you guys covered Prey on your podcast. Mm -hmm. I played Stealthy and Prey. And then once you get caught, it's game on. It's a different type of game. Um, but in this, once you get caught, you just get sent back to the beginning and it's, it's, it sucks. And it's really easy to get caught. It feels like the rules that have been established for stealth up until this point don't really apply anymore. Like they're Mm -hmm. way more strict about what, what you can get away with. You can't stealth kill the enemies uh, because they take way too much health. Mm -hmm. Um, You can kill them, but it's really hard. Uh, You would have to like try to cheese it. I feel like. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what it effectively turns into is you just have to be perfect at stealth. (laughs) And the way that you do that is by, picking up the bananas and dropping them in places to get guards to turn their back. But it's kind of fiddly. You can't throw items. You can't throw bananas. You can only drop them in front of you. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just, yeah, it, it sucks. It's, it's the worst part in the game as far as a like scripted thing that you have to do. Mm -hmm. But the silver lining, like you said, is the boss fight is good at the end. Mm It is a traditional Zelda puzzle type boss fight. He has a gimmick. You need to figure out exactly how to counter what he's doing, as opposed to the divine beast boss fights that are just like, learn their attack, learn which one you can parry. This Mm -hmm. one has like a a puzzly aspect to it, and Mm -hmm. it's really good. So I'm glad you brought that up because I'll take the opportunity to shit on that uh, hideout (laughs) section because it's awful.
1: (laughs) It is, yeah, um, it, there's really not much more I can say, but I could say the same thing about how much I dislike it over and over <laughs> again. Yeah. Right. Uh, um,
0: the, the good part, the other good part, very faint praise again, is that it's very short. Once you complete it, you realize it's like two rooms and then you're at the boss. But yes, the act of getting through those two rooms sucks so bad that it feels like it's 20 rooms.
1: It takes so much longer. And a part of me wonders if it was um, if they designed it thinking that it would be a lot easier or a lot simpler than it actually turned out to be. Um, I think you're right that like the stealth in there feels antiquated. All you can do is distract and you can't even throw the item to distract. Yeah. You have to be crouching. You have to drop the banana and then you have to exit. And then they it buys you some time to make it to the next part of the maze. Yeah. Um yeah, if if it had been optional, it would be better because I wouldn't have had to do it. Like I think it would have been worth it for the boss. Like I totally agree there. And I the other silver lining is that the amount of resources in there are freaking like there's a ton. Um yep. I remember going back and doing it a second time actually with a guide. Um and the guide pointed out like there's so many gems in there now mm-hmm. i also i originally pulled up the guide because i was like let me get through this as painless as possible but i happened to pull up a guide that was like to 100 percent all the items in there which was super worth it uh-huh. like but <laughs> terrible section oh
3: man
0: yep Going from a terrible section to um, what I feel like is the best level in the game, the best section in the game, like an unqualified win for the game is going to Hyrule Castle. So again, you can do this whenever you want, but it's really up to you. Like when you feel like you're ready, it's time to go to Hyrule Castle. Uh, So for me, it was Mm -hmm. like I I did all four of the Divine Beasts and then I spent more time exploring because I was having fun. And then I, I had the feeling like, okay, let's go end this. And this, um, it starts by, you need to find a way into the castle cause you can't just like walk through the front. It's guarded super heavily by guardians. And like, unless you're pro mm-hmm. you can't fight six guardians at the same time. So right. luckily there's a lot of different ways to get into the castle grounds. Like you can go in, you can try to glide, um, up to the entrance you can use your zora tunic and go up some waterfalls which is how i usually get into the castle um this like just starting from the beginning it's um it's kind of like distilling down all the choice that you've had for how you tackle a bunch of the obstacles throughout the game now they're building an entire level with all of that choice into Mm -hmm. it and it it goes once you're in the castle that choice continues you can walk the paths and fight all the mini bosses and explore all the rooms, or you can just climb the walls and mm-hmm. uh ride the updrafts up and really kind of skip all that stuff. Total freedom to approach it the way you want.
1: Yeah, I love it. The first time, um and now that I'm thinking about it, I've actually done Hyrule Castle more times than I've actually played the game. Um <laughs> because I'm thinking about all the different ways that I entered um, first time I entered in, I ended up gliding in just from a high point in a cliff nearby and ended up like, uh, landing in, in some of the wall and like ended up climbing up into the dining area, which is, mm-hmm. um, skipping quite a lot, I feel like, of what's actually available in Hyrule Castle. And, um, man, the second you get in there, like you're gliding in and I feel like you have three different lasers, you know, guardian lasers honed in on you. I mean, the adrenaline kicks up and, um, it is so much fun. I feel like to sort of navigate those halls and navigate the enemies in there and read all the different lore books and, um, the princess Zelda's diary in there, I think is super fascinating and what she has to say about what was happening to her before the the calamity. Um, mm-hmm. the second time I went in was, uh, through the moat. Um, there's a back entrance, right? Uh, it's like a boat launch and there's actually okay. a shrine in there. So, um, It's nice to have the, the fast travel point that's like right there. Now, if you enter in from there, you start like down in the dungeons, which I think is another super cool area of Hyrule Castle. And I think it's one of the few unique versions of the Hinox, the Stalinox, like the, it's like the skeletal knight version of a Hinox. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there are very few of those in the game and one of those is in the dungeon. So I remember like coming up through the dungeon and seeing that thing and being like, holy crap. Something new. This is super cool, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, He's got the same moveset pretty much. But anyway, it was exciting, you know? And then I remember trying to just, like, go through the front and just get absolutely shredded. Like, there's yeah. no way this is going to happen. But a lot of the times that I went into Hyrule Castle, and now that I'm thinking about it, um, I did this so many times to go in, explore, and, like, plunder, and then come back out, right? yeah. But, but most of the times was just kind of gliding into a new part of the castle, um, with a bunch of guardian arrows ready so that I could shoot all the floating helicopter guardians down, um, and I could actually make it to the castle. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I loved it. It's a, so it's like the actual, it's the only level I feel like, like traditional level or dungeon maybe in the game and it feels like it really stands apart from the rest of the game and that it is really tough but it is extremely like uh accessible and in how you want to take down hyrule castle and then later calamity ganon
0: yeah absolutely um to kind of like go further with that this feels like the only level in a zelda game that doesn't feel like a dungeon it feels like a real space that you're exploring so like Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things about a lot of, you know, we, we've mentioned Elden Ring lots of times. Well, like you're exploring castles in Elden Ring and they, they kind of feel like real castles. They don't feel like video game levels in that way. And this feels like that. It feels like a real castle. So like one of my favorite things about immersive Sims is exploring living spaces. And so again, pray because you guys just did that. Like yeah. that doesn't feel like a video game level. It feels like a place where people live and work. And that's how mm-hmm. Hyrule Castle feels too. Cause you'll, maybe you'll pop in through a window and be like, Oh, I'm in the kitchen right now. Or, and then you go out down the hall and you're in the grand dining hall. And mm-hmm. then you climb up a spire and you, you pop in through a hole and you're in Zelda's room. And, um, like Zelda's kind of like study quarters and stuff like that. It feels like a real space. And it, like, I I cannot, overstate like the joy and video game fun that I have going through Hyrule castle after Mm -hmm. me talking about how underwhelmed I was by the divine Beasts to the point that like, even in the spoiler section, I don't have anything to say about them (laughs) uh, really, but Hyrule castle is so fucking good. And Mm -hmm. like, it's tempting for me because the game auto saves you right before you fight Uh, calamity ganon or it might auto save you even before you go into hyrule castle i can't remember
1: um it'll it'll do an auto save before the boss i know because after i beat the game you know it puts a star in the save file where you've beat ganon
0: right and then yeah but you can go back and just kind of like so like i i did that my first time i i i remember beating the game but this being like i want to go explore more because it's a huge level um it yeah you can miss a lot in there and it, it is it feels massive. like um yeah it it feels like you know obviously they put resources and brainpower into the divine beasts cuz they're puzzle boxes um they designed them but it feels like they were like in their design meetings they were like we have to make hyrule castle this has been your destination for dozens of hours right we have to make this payoff worth it and they nailed it. It's so mm-hmm. good. Yeah, I totally,
1: totally agree with that. I mean, the resources alone that you get from there are just incredible, right? Yeah. And um, from what I understand, that's uh, no, I mean, that is the only place you can get the Hylian shield. Like Link's classic shield oh, is, right. uh, is in Hyrule Castle. And um, it is one of the few non guardian shields that can parry guardian lasers. So, uh like that reward, like being in there as well as yeah, just really top-notch weapons just throughout there and with a game with weapon durability, that means the world, right? Where you can go yeah. in. But what I also love about that is that it makes it very possible to not have a lot of save points. Like there's like I mentioned there's the one shrine that's like underneath the castle, down where the boat launch is. Mhm. You know, and there are different areas where you can cook through throughout Hyrule Castle, but that thing is just chock full of supplies and resources to enable you to continue exploring and finding new mm-hmm. nooks and crannies Um yep. that, yeah, I really love that. Also, that game has, or sorry, that, that area has like, I don't know, five different Lynels and you can almost do like a mini boss rush where yep. you're just fighting Lynels back to back.
0: Yep tons and tons of stuff and uh we kind of hinted at it before we talked about how great the music is but like now we can talk about why so you mentioned like how the music reflects the emotion and then like the the theme like the story of what happened to this place it is it's reminiscent of um ganondorf's music in ocarina of time before you go try and fight him kind of that organ but it's it's it sounds corrupted in mm-hmm. a way And then every now and then as that music is playing, you get these like bits of familiar Zelda melodies and motifs coming back in just for uh, one bar or two bars or something to kind of show you how there's a struggle happening here between light and dark. And sometimes the dark is winning and sometimes the light is winning. And like from that perspective too, it like gave me goosebumps when I was playing, like when, Zelda's lullaby would start playing for yeah a couple of measures and then it would go away and then it would be back with that scary organ. You know, it's it's like I cannot I cannot compliment this enough. Yeah, I mean, just a
1: contrast of like the scary organ versus the piano out in the rest of the game, right? Mm -hmm. Where the organ and piano obviously they're two instruments that share a lot of DNA, but they they can present emotions so differently, right? And mm-hmm. I think there's a really big uh, artistic choice here where the piano out in the wild is supposed to sort of represent like something that feels really natural and free flowing, right? Whereas the organ feels like something that's really oppressive, really overwhelming in that contrast. And like just the outside world and Hyrule Castle and the music I think is done so well. I had the same mm-hmm. thoughts about like Zelda's lullaby, right? This. The music in Hyrule Castle is the one moment where you will start picking out all the Zelda music that you're very familiar with. There aren't sort of weird, sparse, mm-hmm. abstract arrangements. Things are really straightforward. I remember reading somewhere once somebody pointed out that um, the low on heart beeping sound from like 2D Zelda games will actually show up in some of the music as well, right? Mm. To sort of it heightens that sort of stress that we have, you know, baked into us from those older <laughs> yeah. elder games that we've played. Right. So yeah. I think it's, it's really wonderful music because it gets the adrenaline flowing, but without being like, um, raucous at all, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's just like this very broody, oppressive organ. And I just think that it works so well to communicate the mood of the castle.
0: Yeah. hundred percent. And so all the while you're, you're going through this, you're experiencing this struggle, and then you get to uh, the final boss. You get to Ganon, um, who is in this weird pus sack when you first find him. Um, <laughs> but then you fight Calamity Ganon. It's a four phase boss fight. The first phase, if you did all the divine beasts, they shoot their lasers in and they wipe out the first phase of the boss, which is like appreciated, but like, why couldn't you do that on the last phase? like the third phase when I actually need the help. I can take down phase one of a boss fight Mm -hmm. (laughs) by definition. It's the easiest part, but they destroy it. Uh, phase two is just a regular fight. Very reminiscent of the divine beast boss fights. Uh, phase three, he's invincible, uh, like climbing on the walls and stuff. You, I, the way that I did this was I parried the lasers. I don't know if there's another way to beat this phase, Um, this is the third phase before you go out in the field if you're playing along.
1: Yeah, that's how I remember doing that phase as well, right? Um, -hmm. which is, which is so interesting because you can get through the majority of the game without parrying with the exception of the, well, the guardians. I mean, you could take down a guardian without parrying their laser, right? Yeah. But if you do parry their laser, it makes those fights significantly easier, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, this boss fight, I thought it was kind of fine. I do love how they incorporated the divine beast help in order to like, um, have some continuity with the story and how like your decisions have meaningful, you know, impact. Yeah. If you do all four divine beasts, then they will help you. You know, maybe the help isn't the best or most appreciated, but I mean, Hey, (laughs) they did something right. And it was worthwhile to do it. You get to skip a whole chunk of this boss fight. And, um, so, yeah, I thought that was really cool. Uh, yeah. Before you get to the field, it, um, it, I think the Ganon fight is better than any of the Divine Beast, you know, when Blight, Blight Ganon yeah, fights.
0: Without question. Right?
1: Yeah. Um, but it's, it didn't feel like a traditional Zelda fight to me still. Right? Not like uh, the Yiga Clan Leader fight did necessarily. I don't know how you felt about this boss fight. Like, I I don't think it was a bad boss fight. I mm-hmm. think it was worth it to be as long as it was because I wanted a really big payoff and I wanted Ganon to feel like he was really tough because that's how everybody's talking about him. But yeah. like, I guess con- comparing with like other video games, not my favorite final boss fight.
0: Yeah. Um Final bosses are weird. Uh They're often either too difficult and therefore not satisfying as like a conclusion to the game or they're just kind of like you know the final boss fight in a lot of zelda games is not like super different from any of the bosses you've done in the dungeons up until that point you know like there's a couple Mm -hmm. of them that stand out as being really cool um ocarina of time again that final boss fight felt very cool yeah this one, I like, I agree. It's it's better than the Divine Beast fights because it's it's a souped up version of those. He's got yeah. more moves than those, um, more phases. It it feels like the most powerful thing you're going to fight, for sure. hmm But it's not the hardest thing you're going to fight. I found every Lionel fight to be more difficult than Ganon at the end. And I don't yeah. think I feel great mm-hmm. about that realization but what it does do i think is it is better it is a very good final boss from a narrative perspective where mm-hmm. you freed the divine beasts the divine beasts were originally constructed to help you fight ganon you assumed control of them again now they're helping out in the fight um zelda is involved in the fight uh, eventually and it does feel like you're fighting this really dangerous creature even if it's not the hardest thing you're going to fight In the game. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you get to the set piece at the end, which is from a narrative perspective, it's cool. From a gameplay perspective, it's um, underwhelming, I think. So, phase four uh, Ganon transforms into this giant kind of bull form. Uh, You go out into a field. It's not the real field from the game, it's a new level you go into. Um, And you're on horseback, which is always enough of a struggle to control that it's like, it doesn't feel great. You know, mm-hmm. Zelda gives you this, this bow of light. Um, and you shoot the glowing spots on the bull. But the key thing about it is that it's so hard to get hit by the attacks because they have the slowest windups possible that this is not a challenge in the slightest. It is basically a cutscene, mm-hmm. And I, I don't like that about this. I wish that this were more difficult. It's always
1: a risk to switch up mechanics mid-fight, I think, for yeah. any boss. Mm-hmm. And then to do it for a final boss also, right? I mean, if you had to learn parrying to sort of get through the main uh, Ganon boss fight, well, were you practicing archery on horseback throughout the game, right? Because if you weren't, suddenly this fight is going to feel kind of bad. And my first time taking this down, it took me a while to figure out, okay, hold on. I have to move the horse and then I have to do motion controls if I want to really land these arrows. I mean, you don't have to do motion control. Eventually I learned to do motion control and use the thumbstick simultaneously. But, um, yeah, it's, it's always a risk. And when making that risk, it was clear, like you said, that the designers behind this fight thought, okay, we have to make this more of an interactive cutscene because we're making such drastic changes to what was going on, right? Like previously. Yeah. So I understand that decision. Um, I think I totally agree. As a set piece, super cool. Like narratively, super cool. Ganon has historically turned into some sort of warthog bull in the past. Why not now, right? And so I thought all that stuff was cool. I thought it was a cool spectacle. I kind of wish you can do this, but I kind of wish that you didn't get the horse. I, and maybe Ganon didn't have to be so big, but I kind of wish that you just had this massive Hyrule field arena. It was you on your own two feet and you had to figure out how to take down this giant warthog bull thing. Um yeah. Now, of course, this is just me speculating. I don't know how that would actually pan out. But really what I mean to say is that, sure, you could do this fight without the horse, but the horse is super dependent here. And... uh I don't know. I just kind of wish I could have used my arsenal the way that I was really comfortable with, which was Link on his feet fighting the final boss instead of Link on a horse.
0: Yeah, the the one like the defense for that is that before all of the divine beasts you had to do some kind of like set piece action thing to calm them down enough to enter the divine beast or like lower their defenses or something. And mm-hmm. there's a couple of them that are similar to this. The, one of the reasons that I think this sucks is that we didn't talk about this much. We didn't talk about this at all, but you have access to horses the entire game, but I never used them because they, you're you're just on the move way too often. And like, if you take a horse up to a mountain and then you climb up the mountain and then you jump off and glide somewhere else, your horse is gone. <laughs> you You can't call it back to you. So like, I never used horses. So the few times that like, I have to, it didn't feel great, including this, but I really just got the feeling during this last phase of the Ganon fight that they didn't want you to lose. They wanted this to be a guaranteed win. It is so easy. And if Mm -hmm. you do get hit, it doesn't hurt you that much. I would, like, I don't want to say like, no one's ever going to die against this because someone might, right? We've all, you know, got things that we're better at than others, or some people may have a reason why this is more difficult for them, but this is, this is so much easier than any other boss fight or phase of another boss fight uh, in like the same, you know, the final boss that to have this be the last phase, the climactic moment, you still get the climactic moment of firing the final arrow, but it's like, it, it felt, it didn't feel earned as much as it could have because it was just so, easy yeah and like not in a pro gamer type of way like this i got hit on purpose just to see what it would do and it took like four hearts off like it's just programmed to be easy and it just kind of like you get over it because that final shot is cool and then you see the ending of the game and stuff but it could have been more of a challenge to overcome like this is really similar to the final boss fight in twilight princess yeah. And that was a lot of fun being out riding on horseback in the final boss of that game. And this, this part was like cool spectacle, but not fun from a gameplay perspective. Yeah.
1: It's really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I really don't think you could lose. I mean, like you said, sure. It's possible to lose that fight, but, um, I totally agree in that, like fighting a Lionel, which is like infinitely more difficult. Right. Because a Lionel, if a Lionel hits you, it's going to hurt like heck, and uh, yeah. you have to be really stocked up on stuff, otherwise you're going to be totally screwed. So yeah, the final yeah, I'm, I'm kind of coming back to the same summary, right? Really cool spectacle. I loved looking at it. I like how it transitioned into the final cutscene. Um, I love that Zelda showed up. You know, this very much took me back to. Other Zelda games where Zelda shows up at the very end, she has a unique ability or power that she could be that she has to use as well to help finish the fight. And Mm -hmm. so I felt like they incorporated that well again here. But yeah,
0: cool to look at. Yep. So Mm -hmm. even though the final boss fight kind of ends in a kind of unsatisfying way, you do get to see the ending after this, and uh, Zelda and Link reunite. And um, I cried during the ending because this game means a ton to me. Uh, it's not the narrative content that made me cry; it's just the culmination of this journey in this game that mm-hmm. means a ton to me. In the like my life uh, and hobby of playing video games, and now doing a podcast about it. Um, obviously, I care about games, and this is one that left just an incredible uh, imprint on me. So. Jake, thank you for joining me uh, for this episode for three hours. Um, and very thank welcome. you to Cameron for giving us as much time as he could um on this busy day. Um I appreciate both of you guys. This has been an awesome conversation from the very beginning of this podcast. I knew in my heart I would do breath of the wild someday. Just had to be done., uh, so again, I appreciate you guys so much for for coming on and talking about it with me.
1: Yeah, I mean, hey, we are super glad that you picked us to do it. I mean, yeah. Uh we're fans of of your podcast obviously and so to be able to come and and, and share and talk about Breath of the Wild with you has been a, an honor it's been a ton of fun. Um yeah and it, the funny thing is 3 hours doesn't even give this game justice. Um oh, we didn't even no. mention we didn't even mention horses until the very end, right? And think of all the other right. things that we sort of missed as well too. But yeah, thanks thanks so much for having us on.
0: Yeah. This is um this is another one where I can confidently say like Hey, if a five hour podcast wasn't unreasonable, we could, we could probably go for another couple hours. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys again. Um, I will say one more time for everybody listening, if you made it this far, thank you very much. Uh, please go check out the pre-order bonus podcast. Uh, it's a podcast I listen to all the time, um, got turned onto it recently and I'm really glad I found it. Uh, their episodes are significantly more bite-sized than this episode here uh, today. (laughs) Uh, But again, go check it out. Very quality show. Um, And again, just appreciate everybody listening. Thank you to the patrons uh, of this show and of uh, the Tube Network. I appreciate you all. And yeah, tune in next week for the next game to come out of the backlog.